to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is number four, and I'm here with number 57. Number 57, express your commitment to the podcast collective at this time. Shire. Shire. Pretend I said that 57 times <laughs> or something. Maybe we'll yes, loop it. Th- th- Maybe that's we'll acceptable. Yes, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, get it because it's the the young one. Did did they get the reference? I don't. I, I don't was, know. I don't know. I don't know. Good, you know, go back later and listen to this again. <laughs> but yes, Matt, as you said, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first time reader, through Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week we are covering Arc Twenty Four, Crushed, and the battle against Behemoth begins in earnest this is yeah. uh, a lot of action a lot of action yeah yeah there, there there are a lot of action chapters but i think uh i think one word that you use um to describe some of this is that it that it is actually surprising it's not just a yeah. straight up slugfest the whole time there's there's twists and turns and, and side tracks that are that are very enjoyable and interesting and uh and i'm really looking forward to going into some of those yeah absolutely i kind of figured approaching this this arc that it would be a lot of us just saying and then yada 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 fighting 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 and we'd move on um but you know there is a lot of fighting in this arc there is a lot of action but it's not really that kind of stuff that you can yada yada and i think that's a testament to the writing that the amount of stuff we can just kind of skip over because action is happening is i feel like decreasing as we move further in the book and i think that kind of shows how wild Bo's uh, writing skill is is elevating as he's going yeah, it structurally reminds me of the Echidna arc a, a little bit, like like in a good way, in in the sense that there's there's a big bad monster, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening in orbit of the fight with the big bad monster, and 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 that's that's interesting stuff. Of course, the, the fighting I think is really interesting here too. Yeah, and and every time we threaten to for the stakes to to expand out too much and get too big and lose focus, I think we have those moments where we shrink everything down. And, and get very personal and very intimate in in the stakes and the focus of everyone's individual fights. And I think that's really commendable. Yeah, I agree. You definitely feel um, worried about everyone uh, very, very frequently. There's a lot of intensity in this in this arc. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's do some announcements. Um, okay. So as of today, Twig, the, the wonderful web serial that I've enjoyed reading for the last several years it feels like i'm not sure exactly how long it's been twig is over and worm 2 will be starting up soon um as of the recording date of this podcast obviously if you're listening to this in the far future this isn't probably relevant to you um but yeah uh (laughs) we're we're almost done you know with worm what are we going to do next we're not sure but we're going to announce that soon yeah yeah we're kind of uh home stretch here matt we've after this we've got seven more arcs nine more episodes uh not counting the the mailbag at the end of it but as we as we get closer and closer to that end date we will be making announcements as far as what we're doing next um but but it will be something for sure yes. so things will happen all right yeah uh yeah the other, the other announcement we had real quick um it's been three months i think since the last one so we said we were going to do these quarterly so we are ready to do another fan art contest um Right now, as I speak, 
the there is a poll going on on the We've Got Worm Twitter account for what the theme of the fan art contest is going to be. Um, right now, as I look at it, with 41% of the vote, the theme Yamada Saves the World is winning. Um, but that could change. So if you're listening to this first thing tomorrow, that I think the, the poll will be expiring sometime around 6 p.m. Central Time tomorrow or today when you're listening to it. So you, there's still time to go in and vote. Um, basically, once that's done, we're going to launch the fan art contest. Just like last time, we'll probably give you guys about a month to to draw something related to the theme, submit it to us. We will pick our top three or, or four or five, depending on how many entries we get. We'll change how many entries we we will put forth. And then we will put it out to our patrons to vote. And they will vote on the best fan art. And that person will get a fun prize. Yeah, yeah. In- including, I believe, a, a, a signed printout of their work. Yeah, signed yeah. signed by by Mr. Bo himself. That's right. Um, so yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun last time. We got a lot of good entries. I'm very happy with the one that won, and uh, I hope I hope we'll get some good ones again. So be on the lookout for what the, the final theme is. I'm sure we'll talk about it every week throughout this month to remind you guys. Um, but I'm excited to see what you guys got. So coming soon, fan art contest number two. Yeah, I'm excited too. All right, let's get into some comments and questions uh, this week. So, so you know, due to how messed up the schedule was with in terms of recording and releasing things, um, we're we're not going to spend a lot of time on comments and questions just because I, I feel like uh, there was the, we weren't really fair to you guys in giving the opportunity to comment at the right times. But we did get uh, one email uh, from from Molly that we wanted to mention, um, and Molly mentions that, um, that she wants to call our attention to one particular thing we have this moment in arc 19 where taylor mentally chastises gully for offering condolences to tecton regarding raymancer's um possible fate or actual actual fate um and, and you know she says uh sympathy could be a horrible thing to give someone depending on who they were and how far along they were in their acceptance of the event um and in the podcast we kind of um you know give her a hard time about this. And then at the end of 23.5, Taylor literally gives Tecton condolences for Raymancer's fate. Um, while it's true that their circumstances are different here, the fact that it's the same person in the same subject matter makes it clear to me that this is an intentional parallel. Um, and considering that this took place hours after her meeting with Jessica Yamada, do we think that this is uh, intentionally showing a change in how Taylor perceives uh, sh- the showing of vulnerability? Um, or is this just another example of Taylor applying a different set of standards to herself relative to others? That's a really great question. And the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's, I think it's kind of both. Um, I think first of all, we, we have, I I think you can't ignore that that time has gone by that Taylor's comment was very specific to um, now is not the time to be offering condolences is too soon um they haven't they haven't really moved along in their acceptance of the event but i think i think molly's right here that that this is an intentional parallel that we see this is the same person talking about the same thing this isn't one of these uh relatable events that you and i dig into the story to find that are kind of sometimes loosely connected these are literally same people same thing so i i think yes i think we're seeing we're seeing taylor change a little bit here we're seeing taylor um try to be understanding and, and try to to uh, reason with what this person might be going through. But at the same time, yeah, Taylor always judges the things that she does on a different level than she judges the things that other people do. So right. uh, you can't ignore that. 
Yeah, at, at that point in time when she gave that first, uh, you know, mental chastisement, she was very much locked into her villain mode of operating, and and and, and since then, like you said, there's there've been other indications of change. So I am tempted to view this as a direct direct contrast. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm leaning more in that direction now that this has been pointed out to me than just saying like, oh, you know, Taylor just does whatever she feels like and justifies it because I think before Taylor wouldn't have felt like doing this. Like she, she would have been reserved and and hard assed about everything. Um, and now she's her, her first impulse is not to be like emotionally closed down about it. So, yeah. And that's, and that's the the really interesting part about her growth. And, and we're seeing it a lot in this chapter specifically that just like, the way she is approaching situations has changed. You know, we talked last last week a lot about how she's not fully there yet. She's she's kind of in this weird middle ground, and we kind of see in this arc that she she finds a place in that middle ground. But we do see her do things that are a little different. We do see her approach situations from a different perspective. This idea that you don't always have to be the scary tough one that you can be vulnerable at times um, is a change for her. And I think we see it in this arc, and and I think we see it right there as molly pulled it out as well so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna give taylor credit for this one yeah okay good well with that let's move on into the arc so we open up 24.1 with weaver flying around gathering a sense of the battlefield Um, the fires are making her bugs less useful than usual uh, but she's doing her best to understand what's going on yeah so we move into the, the thick of the battle now i actually think we had a comment last week about uh, how do how do I feel about the 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 behemoth fight being divided up between two arcs. I really didn't even consider it. I just like the first part was just a skirmish or the 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 prologue to the battle, and this is really the battle proper. So it doesn't. I don't. I, I don't. It didn't feel like it was divided into two arcs to me. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, no, I I agree with you that that the first bit was more like the arrival of behemoth, and this is the battle with behemoth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that, you know, we left from an interlude last week that showed that Tattletale is hurt, Accord and, and Chevalier are possibly dead. Um, and I think we're going to play with that dramatic irony a little bit here um, throughout the, the first couple chapters where we know this thing is coming. We've kind of jumped backwards in time a little bit or or, or at least things are so chaotic that no one knows what's happening. Um right. And I, I like that, that we're playing with that dramatic irony a bit. And, and you couple that with the fact that Taylor basically says in these opening moments, hey, my bugs are useless here um, and, and I am going to be severely limited in what I can do. And I think that that builds the hopelessness that combined with the knowledge that we, the audience already know, builds the hopelessness and the, and the tone of of how rough this is going to be, you know, from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that the, the deck is stacked against them is is both being shown to taylor but also not being shown to taylor and that makes us even more worried about it because we keep seeing these beats and and we'll we'll point them out when we get to them where taylor is seeing like the indications of how disorganized the defending forces are and she's thinking like what why is that and 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 very you know because of the lack of communication abilities it takes her forever to even understand what's happened um yeah yeah um, yeah, so uh, I, I like that you pulled out this um, this quote of uh, she she's she's uh, flying around and she she thinks flitting here and there. I thought no, I thought banishing the idea from my head. Not flitting. Never let that word slip in conversation. 
Makes me think of fairies. It'll make Lynn think of fairies. Tecton, I called out as I returned to my roost. <laughs> so, oh, I love this. Um, first, I think Taylor's 100% right here that Glenn would think, ooh, a fairy, huh? And, like, head down this path where she's, like, a magical fairy with her butterfly swarm. Um, I think that would that would most likely absolutely happen, um, yeah. given the opportunity to. Um, but second, I just want to talk about the word choice here, because I love that we finish this beat on that word roost. Um, which Taylor, I think, unconsciously pulls this word out to try to distance her, to try to push herself away from the idea of a fairy in her mind as much as possible. Because roost is very is very bird image like centric, not not this cute little fairy. It's a bird, maybe a raptor, um, and and I I just like that. I like that little tiny beat. Yeah, I I envision I associate roost with like a a violent murderous rooster, uh, which is which is uh, <laughs> equally. Too equally not a fairy yeah. oh yes so so then um having having had that little delightful interlude she directs her team through a building to avoid the stampede of the crowd fleeing behemoth uh basically using her sort of battlefield awareness to guide them uh to an advantageous place most of her wards team um and, and last time in case people have forgotten since it's been a week last time she kind of took uh, she assumed leadership of the chicago wards and basically said okay yeah we're gonna we're gonna go in there and we're gonna support the undersiders so she's finding that most of her wards team are are fairly spooked and and frightened and having a hard time focusing on the battle with with all the danger and chaos around them yeah and i think this serves really to once again show us the difference between uh, a hero and a villain um because there's not there's nothing quite like Endbringer fights, right? There's there's nothing like unless you've experienced one of these before, you just won't know. But Taylor's been in these kind of pressure situations like constantly. Like even when it's not an Endbringer, it's a Slaughterhouse Nine, it's a Kidna, it's something else. It's fighting for her life, left, right, and center. Um, and the rest of these guys, not so much. And I like that this is kind of a, a long setup. This this whole idea of these kids being woefully unprepared for this when we go back to when we learn later in in, in Chevalier's interlude what the original mission statement for the wards were that it was never really this child soldier thing that it's become and and you can see why because like the, these kids are not trained for this they're not prepared for this they're not ready for what this is but but they kind of have to be yeah right and and as we'll see as they go through the fight it, it it's already kind of wearing on them um, th- this is a neat opportunity to talk about Taylor as a character and how she's she's really never had fear. Like the only things that ever scare her um, are, are are situations where she's trapped, which is related to her trigger event. But that's that's one thing that that almost stood out to me immediately in this story is that even the first time when she fights Lung, she's she's immediately in that in that aggressive Taylor's toolbox mode. And she doesn't really let herself get terrified of the fact that she's going to get killed by this guy, and that's that's always been the case with her. Even even with with, uh, with Leviathan, she was just kind of problem solving the whole time. Yeah, um, that's true. And, and she's still doing that. And I think she she as a person may have a hard time even empathizing with normal people who you put them in a horrifying situation like this. They're going to be scared. Yeah, I mean, most of what military training is is to get people in a, in a place where they are so well-trained that they don't like they, they, they know the stuff so well that they don't have this reaction that they just, mm-hmm. their training kicks in and they just go. 
and yeah, I mean, the kids have never really had that kind of training. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, I mean, Taylor has, but you're right that, that this is just something that's ingrained with her, whether it's the nature of her power, whether it's, it's her passenger or whether it's her personality or most likely a really complicated combination of the three. Um, that's kind of just who she is. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, another interesting beat by contrast with the Leviathan fight is that the armbands aren't talking and she guesses that maybe Chevalier intentionally made this change, uh, in order to control morale and keep people from being hammered down by that constant, you know, death toll in their ears. Yeah. So dramatic irony again, right? Like there's, there's lack of communication, orders aren't being doled out people aren't talking and we don't know why and by we i mean taylor because we the reader do know why um you know it's funny like i don't know if you and i have ever like talked about dramatic irony um mm-hmm. i know we've, we've mentioned it here when it was called out um wild boy uses it a lot but we've never talked about like structurally why dramatic irony works and why it's a really effective narrative tool um and i thought maybe this was a good opportunity to do that because we have really a long arc that we're going to go late on. So why not just take a stop to the old structure corner and talk about dramatic irony? Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds good. I, I think, <laughs> I think this is a great, you know, example of it because this is a very successfully intense chapter, uh, arc rather. And a lot of that intensity does come from the fact that things are worse than the characters realize. Yeah. Um, and that makes you, worried because you're watching them make choices that are not optimal choices um and and you're you're kind of you want to yell at them and that's a big i think that's a big element of how, of, of how dramatic irony functions yeah what, what dramatic irony does when it when it is at its best is it puts you the reader in a power position which most most of the time you're reading you're not in that power position you don't know what's happening you're you're following along with the characters with the point of view that you're in but with in the world of dramatic irony, you know, you are in, empowered with information and therefore you are like, you know, but you can't act. And that, it, that increases tension and that increases like your, your gifted power, but not gifted an outlet for it. And it, it is frustrating in a way it's tense in a way it's nerve wracking in a way. And it's really, really engaging. And that's, that's why it works so well. Yeah, there's there's other ways in which Wildo employs this sort of consistently. Like like we always know a little bit more about um about the big picture than Taylor does. Right. And she she kind of like trails our awareness. Like she she's never she's not completely ignorant of things, but like we'll find out about, you know, we'll get some info on like trigger events or like how, you know, the the internal operations of Cauldron usually a few arcs before Taylor gets that information. So she's eventually getting it, but for a while she's operating without it and maybe not, you know, maybe even making bad choices because she's not aware of it. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, you're right that we, because of these interludes, we get to jump around and see things that our our point of view character can't. And um, one of the dangers with dramatic irony, and I don't think that this book has done it, is because your characters don't know things, then you have to have scenes where your characters are catching up to the things that you know. And that can get boring because if you already know it, the character realization of it can be uninteresting. But fortunately, I think Wild Bo uh, dodges that when it does happen. Yeah, right. I, I, I agree that 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 I've I, I know what you I know what you're talking about. I've seen that 
fall flat. And I don't think that that ever happens in the story. In, in fact, very often you're like waiting for the character to learn it excitedly and then and then it kind of is a payoff when they finally do yeah well i think the 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 way to fix that is to make it active and and to make it the character have agency in that discovery that it's not just someone sitting down feeding information to you it's it's learned in a natural surprising suspenseful way and i think that's what wild bow does and and that it matters like I'm, i'm remembering you know when they when they find the cauldron um briefcase the uh, fault lines crew is the one who's there and so you're like oh I, I get it this this isn't just like random information about the setting that's kind of being dumped on us this is really relevant to these characters who we care about um and their lives and their and their struggle so yeah that's yeah, just really one example yeah yeah okay well that, that's that's cool do you want to say anything else about that no let's leave the story structure corner okay jingle 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 maybe yep. one day we'll have jingles not today yeah. not today so let's go through these these wards that she has with her because we're going to see them fight quite a bit. So I think it's worth it to talk about their powers for a second. Yeah. Um, so so Annex, he kind of like maybe you can maybe we need to talk about this because I I like have a weird visualization of what this looks like, but I'm I'm not too certain that I'm right about it. So like he he basically manipulates space and he can kind of move his body around very in a very plastic way inside the space that he's manipulated. I kind that, of imagined it as him like T one thousanding his way into things, like he turns goopy and like melds with something. Yeah, um, I don't know and if that's accurate or not, but and apparently he's also like very durable when he does that. I guess yeah. because he like, he like he uses his body to reinforce buildings and stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that. That I, I did sort of visualize it as a T one thousand thing, except <laughs> except basically just his body stretching around. But then uh, I, I kind of visualize like every single one of these powers is like a T-1000 thing. <laughs> but that's yeah, that's interesting because we also have <laughs> that's a very interesting point. Let's 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 talk about that. All right. We also have, we also have Golem um, who makes giant hands that come out of materials as long as he has access to whatever that kind of material is near him that he can stick his hand into. Yeah, this feels like I think this is a really interesting, exciting power and it feels like straight out of a video game type thing. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure one of my favorite video games as a kid, uh, Shining Force, which is something all the youngsters out there probably have never heard of. Um, but there were golems that literally like punched into the floor and then like a golem hand came up under your character and just like beat the crap out of you. Um, it was cool. And I-, I think that it's really inventive here and I like it. I like the versatility of something that doesn't seem on the surface as that versatile. Yeah. And, and uh, not to, not to skip ahead, but but um, I, I like this as a descendant of another metal generating power that we're aware of. Yeah, yeah. It seems related, but also different in an interesting way. It is very, yeah. very clever. Right. Uh, so Cuff is a me- metallokinetic, so meaning she can move metal with her mind to, to a limited extent, not like Magneto, more in a way that makes her a, like a striker rather than a, you know, a long range fighter. Um, and she also has some kind of enhanced strength and durability to complement that. Um, and sh- she, in particular, is the, is like the character who is handling the fear th- the least well. Um, and and it's kind of funny because like she's wearing all this metal, and Weaver, quote unquote, reassures her that everyone is equally a lightning rod in this situation, and she's not unique. Yeah, that's very reassuring. Don't worry, we're all probably going to die. You're not going to die any more than than I am. Um. Right. 
Cuff is a very interesting character, and and like I said, every time she messes with metal, I just imagine that metal turns into T one thousand goop. But um, we kind of track her through the battle. Like there there are various points where we jump back to her, and I think we've pulled a couple of them at least out here, um, where we track how she's doing and how she's handling things, and um, we kind of see what this battle and what this lifestyle does to a a person, a fully green, never been in this type of thing before, never experienced this type of thing before, person. And, and what it does to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's valuable because we didn't we didn't really do that in the Leviathan fight. We, we were following Taylor. And like we said, Taylor is not a fearful person. This yeah. like Cuff is more like a normal person. And in fact, she did like just didn't she just get her powers like very recently? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that they I, don't quote me on this. But yeah, I mean, she just got her powers not too long ago. I think she's just gotten into the ward she's really never been in any fights let alone a endbringer fight right yeah okay um and then we you know we come we come around to tecton we kind of know what his power is already from the echidna fight he has this kind of like um um control over tectonic forces basically and kind of mixed in with a with with like his gauntlets able to control the ground basically and uh, and he admits that he actually aimed for battlefield control in assembling the team, although at this point it, it's until a little bit later that Weaver really understands what he means by that. Yeah, yeah, this is a really minor beat, but I think it's a pretty important one. Um, Taylor is kind of so used to just having to like pull from whatever she had around her that this concept of assembling and planning around a certain strategy is so foreign to her that she doesn't get it. Um, the bad guys just use whatever they got. The good guys can get assignments and can plan teams and can do all these little different things that she never really had access to. Yeah. Right. Like, like they would try to find synergies within the undersiders, but, but Tekton has basically made his, his, uh, fantasy league, uh, uh, wards team. Yeah. I also like, there's this, this beat here when she's talking to the team that she says, I glanced at each of them in turn. So no one would feel ignored. And this is a really minor thing, but it's, it's, showing how how serious Taylor is taking this leadership thing um, between this and then the research assurance that she offered cuff that we joked about before, but she really was trying like she's like, like she's trying to lead this team. She was thrust in this position. She only knows a few of these people and she's making conscious efforts to to lead them and to to be a figurehead leader for them. Yeah. And since she always kind of falls into the leadership role because of her like enhanced awareness um she's like i might as well be good at this yeah yeah so they they concoct a plan to use golem's giant hands as lightning rods um and tekton's abilities to reduce uh, behemoth's tremor ability yeah this is actually a really really smart plan uh good job chicago wards and taylor or should i just say chicago wards maybe huh speculations all right stay tuned I'm look, looking forward to that one yeah 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 so so weaver uses her bugs to direct civilians away from behemoth as they make their way towards him yeah i guess this is a, a perfect time for me to mention that like every time i see a bug now i just assume that it's taylor directing me somewhere like ev- literally every time i was eating outside last night with friends and there was mosquitoes everywhere and i'm like is it taylor is something something happening <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I mentioned last week when we when just when we were reading the the wards part where she is controlling butterflies, there was like a mass spawning of of uh, those orange butterflies everywhere. Yeah, those monarchs. I don't know. It was it was too know. coincidental. Too coincidental. 
but it it really made me think like so you're in the middle of this this bat this chaos and destruction you're sprinting away from your life and suddenly you just see this giant writhing arrow made out of like centipedes or something (laughs) (laughs) you're just like okay i guess i listened to the bug arrow yeah okay i guess i'm gonna do that yeah it's yeah it's like if you were in a video game though you wouldn't you'd be like no no that's a trap that's a trap yeah no, I'm I'm running from the monster. I see the the bug arrow. I'm going to go the other way because that's obviously a trap <laughs> by a villain. Yeah, so so they 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 enact their plan. Annex uses his power to disassemble a large crane with the others helping to reshape it. Pecting, um, then at that at that point he clarifies to her that he drafted these guys for their power synergy, which is kind of what we were talking about before. Yeah, and he like he learned this from Taylor, right? He observed the way that she worked with the Undersiders and the synergy that was kind of prevalent, luckily, within the Undersiders, um, and then said, we need that. And so he did that, and it's really smart. He's very smart. I like it a lot. Yeah, I think it was isn't that wasn't the echidna arc where they met wasn't that the point where taylor and tattletale were explicitly talking about like like finding power synergies to to leverage during the fight yeah yeah um yes and and he actually says you know that and we fought on the same side i saw what you managed with clock blockers power and yours you stopped alexandria too and all that other stuff where you were warned not to bring up i tilted my head to indicate mild confusion they didn't want us to mention how you've kicked ass as a villain. The way Revel explained it, they wanted to see if you'd boast about it, to see it just how badly you wanted a leadership role, where you get frustrated and how you'd act. Yeah, Taylor uh, frowns at this one, um, but that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That the protector is still kind of feeling out Taylor and unsure what to make of her. We talked about that a lot last week, and, and it kind of makes perfect sense that they would play the wait-and-see game with her. Um, and I think... On top of that, this is a really great character beat because it kind of shows that Tecton, like Miss Militia, um, is not following orders to the letter of the law, right? Like, he's telling her this, like, we were told not to bring this up to you. Not only am I bringing it up, but I'm telling you we were told not to bring it up. So yeah. he's he's an outside-the-box thinker. This whole synergy plan of his is, is representative of that. And, uh, and I think this is someone that Taylor could get along with pretty well. Yeah, he just strikes me as, as like, not a very conniving person, naturally. And he's just, like it's too much of a pain in the ass to keep this a secret, especially if we're like supposed to trust each other for this fight. So he just doesn't yeah. bother. Yeah. Communication, right. That's not going to yeah. come into play later. No, it's not uh, relevant. You know, I, before we move on, as you were reading this, I noticed that sentence. I tilted my head to indicate mild confusion. And that to me is such a, a Taylor way of describing that because like any other human being would say, I tilted my head in mild confusion, but Taylor yeah. has to say, I, I did a thing to to uh, represent a certain emotion so the person can know what the emotion I'm yeah. feeling is. It's very it's very specific, it feels. Also, I imagine like a praying mantis, you know, because she's, <laughs> she's a bug, yeah. obviously, like tilting her head to the side. Yeah. It's sort of inhumanly. Yeah, yeah. Because as we know, everyone always says she moves weird. So you have to imagine anytime she makes a gesture, it's a sort of creepy inhuman gesture. Yeah, and you got to assume that like she's only half looking at them because she <laughs> barely needs her eyes anymore. So like, yeah, how often does she actually look people in the eyes? Yeah, right. And, yeah, that that's one thing that I it always kind of um not not shocks me or confuses me, but like 
I have to constantly remind myself that people are wearing masks and like, I'm not even clear if you can see through her lenses or not. Like, I bet you probably can, but, um, yeah, can't, can she even make eye contact with someone? I'm not sure. Yeah. And this is actually one of the things that, that concerns me about a adaptation of this in the visual medium, you know, because you want to do the weirdness of Taylor's movements and her posture and how she acts around people. Right. But like part of, part of why that's great is that Taylor is wholly unconscious of it. So how do you, how do you do that in a visual medium? How do you get that, that expression across um, without just like making it so obvious that everyone sees it constantly? Right. Yeah. Like I think Taylor, I think in, in any medium where you don't see what's going on in her head, she comes off as much more weird and off-putting and, and it, it may even be difficult to make her like a real protagonist if you don't understand the logic behind cutting various people's eyes out yeah. and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Well, if there's ever an adaptation, we'll have to see that. The, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of very unique and interesting challenges that are not insurmountable, but, but difficult. Yeah. I was just thinking like in so many superhero movies, they basically eventually just do away with masks entirely. Like, like you see Tony Stark's face all the time. You see Iron, you see um Captain America's face all the time. I'm not even gonna bother going through the list. You see almost all those guys, those Marvel heroes' faces all the time. They don't wear yeah. masks at all. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I expect that would probably have to happen here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which doesn't work setting wise, but no, I'm sure they'll figure something <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. And yeah. So. Like like we mentioned, um, he he wanted her as a leader specifically because she's exhibited an ability to leverage these synergies in battle. Yeah, how, how smart is that? If if you're gonna take a, an idea from someone else, why not bring the person you took the idea from in to manage it? Like it's so smart. It's it's such good problem solving, and like he's great. He's really great. Yeah, yeah, we like this character. So they agree together that uh, at, I think, Cuff's suggestion that they should use, uh, that they should make the hand, the giant golem hand, make a V sign for victory, um, which even before you get beyond this point, you have to just assume that this is an obscene gesture in India because that's <laughs> just what's, that's just what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although it depends. I think I, I looked it up because I was curious, but I think it depends on which way the palm is facing. So if the palm's facing out, um, it's not. The palm's okay. facing in, it is. They don't okay. ever really say here. Okay. Um, but I like to think it's facing in because they intentionally avoided doing a middle finger and then did the same thing, basically. <laughs> I guess it depends on which side you're standing on or which side Behemoth is standing on. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, so the giant hand starts coming up out of the base that they've created and reinforced and it ends up growing to 100 feet high, and and then uh, it starts successfully attracting the lightning. Um, and we get a few a few beats here and there of Tekton just being generally better at dealing with people. Yeah, uh, this whole thing is really wonderful. I think like we see Tekton specifically call out Cuff's V idea, especially um, to get her involved and to make her feel useful and to try to calm her down. Again, great leadership. And, and we see Taylor here like thinking it's really lame quickly realizes that's exactly what he's doing um but if i think if we zoom in a, a, a zoom out a little bit we can see that this this entire lightning rod is basically taylor doing that very thing taylor trying to calm her group down make them feel involved because like there was a crane there and they specifically said hey wouldn't the crane 
basically do the same thing, but this was more about making them feel useful, more of a symbol, literally and figuratively, for them to get a win, make them feel good, make them work together as a team. And it, it works because because the lightning rod works and then cheers erupt from the team and you see Taylor smile, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a good point that I, I think it does end up being useful, but there is a level on which it's sort of busy work to get them warmed up. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I felt at least. Because I don't think she would be comfortable just like plunging them directly into a melee with Behemoth at this point. Yeah which is which they, they eventually kind of build up to that but but yeah she's she's getting them warmed up so then they find the undersiders gathering wounded people and uh gru tells her where all their allies are situated and that they've split into a few groups at this point um, at this point she watches legend and idolin fight behemoth uh, and uh and then they see him notice that the lightning rod keeps absorbing his long range strikes and then he and then he actively starts avoiding it well there goes that yeah <laughs> um then regent uh asks about the v assuming that uh they're calling behemoth a vagina uh obviously and and uh the two teams then kind of taunt each other back and forth in a in a semi-friendly but slightly edgy way until mom and dad that is uh, uh taylor and grew talk them down yeah matt i like this so much it's really funny um we, we we're setting up region and imps relationship for some reason that i i don't know why that would need to be set up and reminded of again yeah why, um, would, why would be be hitting that beat harder this this arc i don't know oh, it's yeah. really weird um and and i like that like they're saying that it was lame which taylor literally thought the same thing so they are echoing taylor's exact thought um and then we do this this fun ha- back and forth half joking half serious threats between the two teams and i think this works for a couple reasons um first of all everyone here is tense and and there's a tendency in moments of tension to to joke to crack jokes and posture and like you have to relieve the tension somehow and you have to work your your built up stress somehow so you take it out on these other people that are standing around you um and but i think if we look a little deeper here like we see regent is especially joking and kind of especially hostile today and and why why is that? Why is that today of all days Regent is is especially hostile? Is it just that he's fighting an Endbringer, or is it that there's that Taylor's here again and she has a, a new team, and maybe he's a little jealous? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I like I I've always kind of heard, and, and I think it's true that like a lot of a lot of gentle ribbing type jokes are are actually just the truth. <laughs> like yeah like hey man we're really mad that you abandoned us last night <laughs> and everyone laughs it's like right. it's like you're communicating that you're actually irritating that that, that, that that you're irritated that whoever it is abandoned you right like that's 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 how people communicate minor grievances in a way that actually reinforces their friendship so i think Re- regent is doing a lot of that here where he he keeps making fun of her for being a hero um and he's actually just kind of in his own special way um venting yeah and he's he's pushing hard against the wards as -hmm. well and i think that's intentional like she left them and here she is again and she's with this new group of people it's her new friends and yeah regent doesn't deal with emotions well he doesn't know how to express them and he does it in the only way he he can and we've we've been told by Gru that when he actually does get annoyed he does this his ribbing becomes more fierce his sarcasm more pronounced 
And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So, yeah. We're, we're going to talk about Regent Taylor similarities more in a little bit, but I, I wanted to, to point out like she uses the word lame and then, and then he, he, he uses exactly the same word, I believe. Yep. But she, she positions herself as the mom in this, you know, like she, she's always trying to take a high ground on Regent, even though she thought exactly the same thing that he thought. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's just the first time that this happens again later, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I have to point out before we go on, that this is the point in my original read that I realized that Gru would probably not be the one dying this week. <laughs> yeah. As Regent once again, Meta points out that we're breaking rules of storytelling and mentioning that Gru's already screwed because he's not a virgin and he starts saying he's black. Um, right. and then get smacked because he deserves to get smacked for that but it's really hilarious beat um but but by saying this region has made grew in the rules of storytelling region has made grew safe now and right. regent well, well well we'll we'll get there yeah right so grew rachel and weaver watch over the wounded while the others head off to do side missions uh, he sends rachel away on a task and then grew walks up to her and leans his head against hers she wishes she could give him some comfort, but she makes no further move to do so other than to say that she misses him. Yeah, so so a couple things I wanted to discuss here. Um, first of all, we see that although Gru is now leader of the Undersiders, Rachel kind of still thinks as Taylor as the leader of the pack because Gru gives her an order and, and Rachel looks at Taylor for approval, for a nod that, that Weaver can't give because that would undermine him. Um, but, but secondly, the, the, this whole scene with the two of them and and it's it's really wonderful uh taylor thinks to herself that is it has been a long time since she felt quite so insecure as she had this past week as skitter she's had a kind of confidence as weaver i didn't yet feel on steady ground but in this moment somehow i felt like i could be his rock and then at this moment went back and said nope grew is definitely gonna die he's gonna (laughs) die this is this is it this is their goodbye um and and of course grew doesn't die today but i I still think this might could possibly be their last moment really together. Um, and I think this moment is a perfect symbol of their relationship as a whole because they're leaning on each other, but they're separated. And that this is, I think, where you're talking about visual mediums where the masks are absolutely necessary here because they're leaning on each other, but their masks separate them. Uh, emotion, feelings, they, they can't penetrate those masks that they wear, that they're, they're using each other for support, but any kind of actual real connection there is is stopped by who they are and what they have to be that's fantastic yeah i i, I love this this visual image as a representation for for their whole relationship that's amazing yeah, yeah. so then they, they move on and they get back into helping weaver helps one of the wounded a 10 year old girl and she takes off her mask to try to disarm the girl and, and make her less fearful Although it doesn't really seem to do much because I think the girl's fear has a lot more to do with her situation than Weaver's appearance. Uh, she checks over the girl with bugs and then she rolls her onto the hover pack. She thinks about how angry this all makes her at the Inbringers. Yeah, you are right here that, that she um, she thinks that the girl's afraid of her when she's actually afraid of the terrifying things that are going on here. But isn't this different from Skitter here mm-hmm. that she takes off her mask and says, no, look, I'm just a normal person. Like Skitter was so concerned with image, so concerned with creating this infallible, scary, always confident person. And this is different. This is, this is kind of growth. This is her transitioning away from that persona. 
Yeah, she's going to talk about the middle ground toward the end of this arc. I think this is a great a great moment for that because it's it's she's still wearing her her skitter costume basically, but she's she's not she's very much pushing back against that skitter persona. Yeah. Yeah. Um so she when she gets a moment with Cuff, she asks why Cuff came at all uh, because she's having such a hard time and Cuff says that it's for her mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're rounding up the f- the first chapter of this. I don't know how we took so long on the first chapter, but but that's yeah, what we, we do. Always do. Yep. Yeah. Um. But we're we're rounding through the first chapter, and and this is a great beat to kind of cap it. That everyone is here for their own reasons. Everyone is is a hero for their own reasons. But that end goal is the same. They're here to do something. They can't stand idly by. And in this moment, we see Taylor resolute. She turns to Cuff and says, "We're gonna hurt him." And and yes, you fucking will, Taylor. Yes, you will. Yeah, yeah. It, overall, I love this this first chapter. So yeah, they it it ends with they're they're starting to ride away with the wounded, um, but they're mostly knocked down when um, one of the tri or biumvirate capes uh, knocks Behemoth down, <laughs> um, and then she looks and she sees that actually it's somebody else. It's somebody who looks an awful lot like Alexandria. Yeah, what a great end to the chapter. Um, I, I, I did not see this coming and I'm, I'm curious if you remember what your reaction was the first time you read this. I, I, I do. Um, and I, I'm, so I'm actually glad that this was cleared up fairly quickly because yeah. I think I was slightly irritated at the, I'm, I'm just generally don't like the trope of like, Oh, uh, you thought this person was dead and it was really, really meaningful plot wise that they were dead but they're back because we can't ever kill characters, um, and that's not that, that's not what this is at all. Um, yeah. So so for a second I was like, oh really? We just we just dealt with this whole situation, and, and, which which I've kind of learned now. Like even if it had been somehow magically resurrected Alexandria, I'm sure Welbo would have like made it work. Um, but uh, but yeah, that, that was my initial reaction. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right though that that Alexandria being dead was so important to Taylor hitting her low point that to take that away would completely remove the significance of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I too am very glad that this is not what this ends up being. Um, but it sure is. It works as a temporarily temporary cliffhanger when you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it lasts as a mystery just long enough for, for it to be, for it to be enticing, but not so long that it outstays its welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So then we move on to 24.2 and this Alexandria person or whoever it is attacks again, hitting Behemoth hard. It changes how Behemoth fights because as we know, he knows how to fight her and he knows how to redirect the energy of her attacks. Um, but she can always find moments to strike when he's not paying attention while he's battling other capes. Yeah. And I think the reason to tie into what we were just talking about, the reason why this doesn't overstay its welcome is because I think we almost immediately start getting beats about how things are not quite what they seem uh, because Taylor notices that Alexandria is passing up on opportunities that are, there are strikes she could take that she's not. Um, And it's almost as if this is just like a person pretending to be Alexandria um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't fully, fully have a full grasp of her power and what she can do. Maybe so. (laughs) Yeah, so Behemoth uh, eventually makes it to their lightning tower and knocks it down. Yeah, and, and going back, I mean, this is this is why I think this sometimes this writing is so brilliant because if we if we 
treat the lightning rod as a symbol of victory as, as a test for them to come together. Um, V for victory. We've had our first plan that we worked together and it worked. Then the lightning that rod being knocked down has to be the exact opposite of that too, right? That it's a shift in the battle, that things are about to get a whole lot worse now that your symbol of victory is gone. Yeah. We might as well mention now, like the, the sense in which things just get, worse and worse and worse and 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 i think you're going to point this out like you continually think oh this is this is really bad and then it gets worse yeah Um, yeah and that's you know this is maybe the maybe the beginning of that downhill slide um yeah so and like i'm not i'm not picking it out consistently because it's just kind of a, a, a persistent background thing um but continue that like the continuing humor uh, coming from the regent and imp interactions and, and their banter is really delightful and and per, like really makes the battle um i guess more tolerable like like if that if that element weren't there then then uh it, things would be even more grim and, and a little bit less fun and i think it's important to kind of balance that where, where it needs to be um and, but but in, in addition to the banter serving the comic relief function it's also serving the function of making us really care about regent and imp's relationship and and about regent uh so he can make us feel worse <laughs> later yeah you're right i mean we we've talked about how good wild bow is at setting this stuff up before but it, this is another example of how it's done so naturally that it it almost doesn't even feel like setup it just feels like oh this is regent and imp this is what they do we're just seeing more of that but no we're we're behind the scenes we're reinforcing these relationships we're drawing attention to them reinforcing them showing in the time that taylor's been away from them how they've strengthened and this is all very intentional and very purposeful but you don't see it and that's great yeah i i don't i think i was probably reading this like so quickly the first time that i read it because it's 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 so intense that you're very you know tempted to just read as quickly as you can yeah that that i didn't i didn't it didn't occur to me that this was this was foreshadowing or whatever um, yeah. until, until it happened. Yeah. So yeah, behemoth at this point starts glowing white and waiting forward. And, uh, and, and we're sort of told that the glowing white indicates radiation and grew uses his darkness to block the radiation. And Taylor's able to use her bugs to sense their way through the darkness and communicate uh, directions around fires to grew. Man, what a team, right? These two should like get together. Oh, oh, Oh. oh, no. Let's move uh, on. Yeah, the, the Undersider Ward group comes across some locals with guns, and they hand off the injured to these folks. Uh, and then they bring the, the sleds down into an underground area, and Weaver realizes that these are capes, actually, that are surrounding them. The cold capes, the tanda. And they go deeper and deeper underground, so deep uh, that the surface is actually out of her bug range. Yeah, and this is the first time that the, the, the arc really really surprised me which i think we talked about at the beginning of the episode um because we we kind of leave the behemoth beh- battle behind now and go into this mini episode with taylor and the wards underground and they're dealing with the the tanda and they're dealing with uh, cauldron and like the, the this thing about these endbringer fights it's it's like it's like playing the loudest note possible at all times and you need these breaks you need these pauses you need these lower volumes to kind of mix things up um not only to keep the fighting from getting stale but to recenter and personalize your stakes like like we talked about and and that's what we do here that that 
our, our characters are feeling useless, feeling like they can't do anything. So we redirect, we move into a different kind of conflict and it's still like tangentially related to the big overall behemoth is here conflict, but it's, it's, it's a different kind of conflict. It's a different kind of thing. And, uh, and it's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's, it's very important to, to keep this kind of thing going. It, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's the, it's the sidetracks that are actually appreciated and underline the major battle. Yeah. Yeah. So the wards starting with Tecton noticing that the tunnel was made by a cape start to clue into the potential danger of the situation. And uh, uh, Taylor notices Golem exhibiting a kind of practice wariness that, uh, that that she makes note of as being unusual. Yeah, and this is when it clicked for me. This is when the Golem is Theo thing fell into place. Um, the power, how it relates to his his father, uh, the chubbiness, the practiced wariness that only a Brockton Bay survivor and the son of a literal Nazi would have. Um, this all this all adds up, and then and then furthermore, we have the use of of Golem, a Jewish folktale creature, uh, sending a clear message that that he's not like his dad and not like those people. It's it's perfect, and it all just fell into place at once. And I was like, oh, this is him. Yeah, that's fun. That's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't remember if I was tracking that at all the first time I read, but yeah, that's it's it's a it's a fun. It, it's I, I like this element that that we that we don't realize it's him and that it's kind of fed to us in, in little clues like this um, yeah yeah and we're not even going to finish this arc with the story definitively telling us it's him um, we give some some pretty more substantial clues later in the arc but not official my name is Theo um, yeah. thing but yeah yeah it's it's well done Right. It's, it's, I, I, I kind of think this is just a really fun thing. Cause like we could have just, you know, had an interlude where we saw his trigger event or, or yeah. learned about this information third hand, second hand rather. But, um, this, I, I like this method. I like this, this narrative trick. I do too, because I think it shows us change in him and, and sometimes yeah. jumping ahead, sometimes not seeing every step of his change, but just jumping from one part to the other works mm-hmm. um, because we can see immediately uh, time has gone by here's his new here's who he is now and here's how he's grown and you can see that immediately right yeah yeah it's like, like when it. you haven't seen someone in a while and they grow a beard it's immediate <laughs> it's immediate difference yeah yeah no it's it's great great metaphor <laughs> so they finally reach a hive uh seemingly a populated underground shelter weaver tells the cat eye cape that the tanda are needed in the fight against behemoth but he kind of angrily refutes her and argues that it's not his duty because his group fights things that she doesn't see, which is kind of obscure. Um, but she wonders if like, if he's talking about threats like the nine, except, you know, different and in his own country. Yeah. Yeah. There's this weird beat where you kind of are wondering that too. And I think, I think Taylor is kind of underthinking it a bit here. Um, the text seems to indicate that the war that they're fighting is at least similar or, or tangential to to that of Cauldron's by having Cauldron literally appear here <laughs> right after the scene. But yeah, it's it's this kind of ambiguous uh, statement that you don't really know. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, let's, let's get into that. So Weaver senses Contessa approach through a Cauldron portal and then she gathers her bugs for a fight, um, which is immediately 
we I, I kind of forgot this until the wards reminded me, but like we got the inbringer truce going on. Really not supposed to be doing that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Tecton advises her to back off, uh, not only because of that, but also because this is the boogeyman who <laughs> who Taylor should not even be stepping to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Contessa is a bully, and and we see Taylor almost <laughs> like slide immediately back into her aggressiveness. Right. Like despite the truce, despite the real threat of the moment rampaging through the streets above them right now. Um, the most interesting thing when I went back and really studied the text while the, the entire time Taylor's walking down this path and the entire time before Contessa gets there, behemoth is at the forefront of her mind. It's what she's thinking about. It's it's everything. And then as soon as Contessa here, behemoth is forgotten. We don't mention behemoth again until until Contessa leaves. So it's literally like she's triggered and this is all she can think about right now. And she has to do something now, immediately go violence. Yeah. I've got this enemy in front of me now. So now this is, this is my enemy, which, which makes very little sense actually. But yeah. um, Yeah. So basically Contessa ignores her at first and, and communicates to the Tanda capes in their own language. And then the people in the catacombs start heading through a large number of cauldron portals into like a grassy field somewhere. The wards then attack Contessa under Weaver's orders, uh, and she just avoids all their attacks and then uses a stiletto to puncture a fire extinguisher, which takes out 90% of Weaver's bugs. <laughs> I mean, holy shit, right? Like, we, yeah. like the idea that you can dodge bug swarms yeah. is... Like, at this point, like, we were about to figure out what her power is. But at this point, I was like, okay, so she's basically everything. Her power is everything. And it kind of is. Right. Despite not having any, like, overt manifestation other than just being perfect. Yeah. So the fight continues with Contessa not even getting a bug on her, despite being surrounded by them. And then getting close enough to place the tip of the blade against Weaver's throat. Uh, The other wards eventually attack all at once from all sides. And she just kind of throws weaver into them in such a perfect you know ballistic arc that it throws all of their attacks off target and they all just like it's it's you almost view this as like a comedic moment like you can imagine visually like everyone is attacking and she just kind of like shifts her weight a bit and turns weaver and then they all just like slam into the walls and each other um yeah and and, i mean she she does her release all the bugs from within inside her suit thing which every time we've seen Weaver do that, Skidder do that. It's been this sudden, like, amazing moment of victory where she turns the tide. Um, w- when she did it to Arm Master the first time, that was like, holy shit, like, she just fucking got him. Yeah. And she even kind of tries to quip here. Like, as she does it in her head, as she sends her, buck- her bugs at her from all directions, she's like, dodge this. Uh-huh. And of course, it doesn't fucking work at all, like, at all. Yeah. So Weaver at this point realizes because her ace in the hole didn't work, they can't win. And in fact, Contessa will probably take off the kid gloves if this fight continues. So she she stops the fight and she asks Contessa what her power is. And I don't think expecting an answer, but Contessa actually answers. She says she wins and then elaborates that she sees the paths of victory and executes them. Yeah, so this is awesome. Um <laughs> I don't think we're going to go into this in, in too much detail today. Like, if we really wanted to, I think you could I could sit down and hash out the implications of this power for, like, hours. Um, but I think that would be pretty boring, first of all, because you can't really participate in that at all. It would just be me talking. That's and, true. And we just, I just don't think we have time. Um, but I will say, 
that that this is a pretty interesting idea and it, and it goes a long way to explain why cauldron seems to be just successful constantly but does not explain cauldron's failings which is also very interesting right um yeah i, I don't remember exactly what she talks about uh here and, and what she reveals but but yeah it's it's definitely this is a really fun power to think about and i don't think i'm tipping my hand at all when i say that a large amount of like forum discussions actually surround this character um so yeah that does not surprise me there's a lot there's a lot here there's a lot of potential uh yeah. complications with this yeah absolutely um yeah and and so she's she's talking with taylor and she says uh it doesn't matter what matters is that there are other enemies you should be fighting enemies plural i asked we're approaching an end game the end of the world the sundering of the protectorate most of the major players know this and the truce has effectively dissolved in every respect but the official one those in positions of power are making plays now today and Alexandria is showing up. Is that part of the, uh, uh, that's part of that? I asked someone's ploy. Yes. Cauldrons or someone else's. Yes. She said a noncommittal answer. <laughs> that's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, and then she further volunteers that her power doesn't work on the inbringers and possibly on others. And then, <coughs> <Zaya. coughs> and, and then she leaves through a portal. Yeah, um, this is this is a really cool limitation, um, if it's true. I, I think we should assume that she didn't lie at any other point during this thing, so why should we, should we lie now? But um, it, it seems like if it doesn't work on Endbringers, I would assume it doesn't work on, on Scion at all, or, or else it would be like, hey, Scion, get Scion here to help us. Um, maybe it just doesn't work on things that aren't human. Da-da-da. Interesting. Um. Yeah, so so they take secretly tinker made vehicles back to the surface. Uh, down, I, I think that's a fun beat because they're they, they're just like normal like moped type things, but they find that they don't actually operate on gas engines. They're they're, <laughs> they're clearly some kind of enhanced technology. Um, and then they get back to the surface and they find that things are are a bit worse off. Large areas have been desolated. They pass a number of clusters of dead capes on their way toward Behemoth casualties who were defending various defensive barricades and when they reach reach behemoth he's still fighting his way forward and he doesn't even look like he's slowing down as they approach we see that Gru is using his darkness to contain the radiation but then the darkness suddenly dissipates hey new delhi grew a beard while taylor was gone <laughs> comes full circle didn't even script it didn't even script it it's good yeah Just, yeah um no one. but this is this is great we we return to the surface and suddenly everything's worse and it's immediate because we didn't see the transition from bad to worse. It's just there. Um, they're losing. Every success that they won, as minor as they were in the first chapter, is gone. Yep, yep. Um, and at, at this point, the armbands indicate that Scion might be on the way, which gives you a little bit of hope, but also informs Taylor that Tattletail is down, that grew and... Uh, Parian are injured and that things just aren't going well yeah we hear that legend is out of commission too legend yeah um and and, and i love the, the little beats here as if to like to drive the hopelessness point home taylor like specifically mentions that behemoth is as injured 
as much as Leviathan was injured when he had his one-on-one fight with Armsmaster, but showing like none of the wear and tear of Leviathan. He's not limping. He's not moving slower. His eye is penetrated by a bunch of flechette arrows, but it doesn't matter. Um, like we're, we're really like, there's really this, this real beat of hopelessness here. And, and, and like you said, like th- this is not the low point. Like it's only going to get worse from here. Yeah. Right. And, and we keep getting these, these textual beats of, of like, uh, and yet he advanced inevitable. Um, yeah. Ugh, it's so good. So Golem and Tecton do a combo attack to slow him down while Idolin and another Cape are using time slowing attacks. Uh, relatively quickly, he smashes through these defenses and he heads for the command center where the thinkers and the command structure are located. Yeah. And this is the, one of the first times where I started writing down and this is the low point of our arc. But then I remembered, <laughs> wait no 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 things are gonna get worse um and i had to go back and erase it and and yeah it just like like things just worse and worse and worse and as if as if to make that very clear we end the chapter on this this another one of wild bow's amazing ways to land an emotional beat in the last paragraph of a chapter um so i want i wanted to read this here sure the woman in the suit had declined to share the other reason her power wouldn't let her simply solve the Endbringer crisis. The answer I'd declined to share with the other wards was a simple one. She had the ability to see a road to victory. Maybe, when it came to the Endbringers, there was nothing for her to see. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Right. It's just the the desperate hopelessness of this is, is really being being hammered in. and And I think... Again, pretty quickly, we're going to get to this point where where Taylor has to go on a little side quest again, and that is allowing the tension in this behemoth fight to actually escalate without wearing us out. Yeah, um, because because like you said, it actually helps a lot that we're getting like a a break between between skirmishes, so that things have time to get worse without just being a a slog. Yeah, and you can tell the wild bow understands this that this 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 basic structural problem that so many freaking blockbuster movies, <coughs> Transformers, don't understand that nothing but the battling and fighting and, and continual action is boring. You don't care anymore, and we saw this in the Leviathan fight. He did a very similar thing there, where he had like Taylor shift focus and do another thing, and we had this whole part where the leviathan gets frozen in time and we have this rest part um and we're doing the same thing here yeah absolutely yeah so then we move right on into 24.3 and at this point most of the capes that are fighting are trying to slow him down more than anything else basically just keep him away from that command center there are dozens of capes fighting so many cool powers interacting both offensive and defensive uh but when one or two capes start actually being effective um in particular revel the cape with the lantern that captures his lightning and then turns it back on him. Um, the inbringer changes tactics and does his roar and, and the roar takes out all the capes near him. Yeah. Almost as if he's just like toying with these people and, and messing around with them until something like starts actually working. And then he actually has to flex his muscles almost, yeah. almost as if, yeah, maybe, I don't know. So she considers whether she really does have uh, a plus two in all power ca- categories at this point, because as she's like surveying everything, she's able to actually notice how many subtle advantages and use cases her power has over others. 
because now she's able to go aid in the evacuation of the command center. It just kind of shows her versatility. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've we've talked about this so many times before, and I'm going to keep talking about it until I'm done with this book. This power is awesome and so smart. And, like, if you were to walk up to a person who had not read Worm and ask someone what someone could do if they were a superhero with the power to control bugs, if you would have asked me before I read this book, my answer would have been, well, you could, like, sting people with your bugs. Yeah. <laughs> and... Like it's so it's so much more than that. And, and you don't even think about it. But it's, of course, of course, you can do all these other things. Maybe a plus two isn't even enough in some of these categories. Like, yeah, I agree. it's crazy. Uh, I want to talk also about the, the flight pack and how I think it's really smart that it's being introduced in this arc, because there's so many other times in the story when when like when she's fighting the nine, for example, where like the flight pack would just be actually releasing tension because it's like, oh, she has one more option. She can, or, or she, she has one more tactical advantage. And like, like conflict wise, you don't really want to give your characters advantages. Um, you you want to, you want to give them flaws. Right. But, um, yeah. but the, the flight pack, it's like, yeah, it comes into play here and it gives her, it gives her a little bit of battlefield maneuverability and it gives her a little bit of, um, travel speed which is important for various reasons so it's it's facilitating the story but the like considering the foe she's actually against it does nothing you know the 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 flight pack doesn't help her fight behemoth it just helps her move around and and do things like get up to the roof easily so i i like that it's introduced here and and not not at any point before this yeah no i I think you're absolutely right and i think wild bow seems like specifically aware of that fact because if you look back at atlas and and how and when atlas was used from the point that he was created you see that that wild bow continually like invents reasons why he can't be in a certain situation because he's like aware that this is this is an advantage this changes things in ways that sometimes are not suitable to the story so he's he's removed and and you're right that that he he's aware of that. He knows when this kind of devices uh, work and when they don't. Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing up Atlas because because both Atlas and this flight pack have have kind of a disadvantage where they're not powerful enough to lift more than just her, and that's kind of clearly yeah. clearly shown. Yep, which is good. So yeah, she gets up to the roof to help the evacuation, and a couple of foreign capes are pushing towards her, desperately trying to get her to carry them away uh, with her flight, which she can't do. Um, and she looks for Tattletail, but can't find her. A cape with some kind of learning power, Arbiter, tells her that uh, one of the capes on the roof is, quote-unquote, pregnant with his dead teammates and wants to be rescued first. Uh, she uses her silk cords to form zip lines to the, for the people to slip down. Uh, Weaver isn't sure that it'll actually work, but she does manage to get those people down from the roof. So a little inside baseball for you guys listening. Um, Matt normally like ends a paragraph and gives me room to put my thoughts in somewhere uh, when he's writing his notes here. Um, he didn't do that for the phrase pregnant with his dead teammates. So, so I guess he just wants to rush past that line as if it's not a fucking crazy oh, thing to say. I don't, I don't know what's interesting about that. <laughs> I'm really hoping for like a translation error here because the person doesn't actually speak English. Cause, cause what the fuck <laughs> what is this? Yeah, what's funny to me is that like I, 
I, I, I forgot that the word dead was in this. Like I, I remember, <laughs> I remember this scene. I remember like, oh, he's pregnant with his teammates. Maybe he's doing like a Matryoshka thing where he's like holding them inside himself and he's going to spit them out later. But it's like, no, he's pregnant with his dead teammates. It's even weirder. Yeah. 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 I could just imagine. It's like, uh, hey guys, don't, don't worry. If you die here, just put you inside my man uterus. Yep. And we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> like what? What? Yeah. Um, okay. All kidding aside though, uh, Taylor's really great here. And, and we have this moment where she really, she wants to go find Tattletail. She wants to make sure Tattletail's okay and, and maybe get some help from her. Um, but she stays and she, she helps make sure everyone, everyone on this roof is able, is able to, to retreat. And I think, this is when I, I specifically called back to that moment at the beginning of the, of the first chapter where Taylor basically says that her bugs aren't useful here and, and she's not going to be very useful in this fight. And then we go back to this moment where she has, through her toolbox, created a way to save tons of lives. Everyone on that roof gets off, except for a few people that die. But that's not her fault. Um, but it, it's it's really great. Yeah, right. And we, I think, as usual, we like to give credit to Heroic Taylor when she's doing heroic things, and, and she's she's really great overall in this whole battle. Yeah. So Arbiter then finally tells her about the rogue cape that attacked people in the building, including Shellier and probably Telltale, um, and that the building sort of went on auto-lockdown, and that's why people haven't been able to get out of the building. Cody, you are the worst. I know. Interesting that we never see what happens to him. Um, yeah. We leave him behind going to to go find that other English speaking Yangban member and then and then what? You're gone? Yeah, I I have a I have a theory. I have a theory, but I I can't say it cuz it's one of those it's one of those spoilers where my theory reveals what doesn't happen by saying the spoiler. So, anyway. Okay. Well, just keep that inside for two months, and then okay. we'll come back to it. All right, I will. So she communicates to Rhyme that the command center is evacuated, and Rhyme orders the retreat. Weaver then falls back to the temple where the injured are being cared for. She finds Tattletail, who starts trying to communicate about the nature of Inbringers, trying to figure out what Behemoth is after based on prior Inbringer behavior. Um, and, and basically, she, she says, or rather writes, because she can't talk uh, due to her crushed throat, we win this by denying him his target. Yeah. So if I had one complaint about this arc, it's Taylor or, or Tattletail feels very much exposition fairy E here. Um, she's always kind of served as exposition person, but it, it seems like we go drop in and just like, okay, now we're going to tell you what's going on um, real quick. And then you're just going to move on to the next thing. Um, it, it, like I, I, don't think it like totally takes me out of it, but it feels very just, okay, it's time for exposition, sit down and learn some stuff. Um, and that's a very, very minor complaint, but it's, it's there. Yeah. Um, it, and I guess I hear you. It feels very much in character for her because I'm, I guess that's, that's a clever thing about Tattletale as the exposition device for the story is that not only is that her power, but it's also her character is to want to not only know everything, but sort of be the know-it-all who, who tells everyone the stuff that she knows. Um, so, so it always feels consistent with her character at the very least when she behaves that way. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's the, the prettiest exposition fairy at the ball, yeah. but um, <laughs> it's still, it's still there. Yeah. 
Um, and so, so as Weaver flies away from this encounter, she muses on the recklessness that arises when Kate Peeling is a available and known factor. God, it's so fucking true, right? Like this is, this is something that's been there in front of us this whole time, but I don't know if if you or I, or, or the story has ever really brought attention to it, that in the world of capes, there's dead and then there's not dead and the injured only matters in that it can take you out of a fight temporarily because you're always going to get healed. You're going to be fine eventually, at least physically. Um, and yeah, it encourages that kind of recklessness. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there must be some limits because like we sort of get the indication that Wanton isn't assuming that he's just going to get his hand back later. Um, yeah. But Tattletail, maybe the idea is that Tattletail just has access to more resources, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then uh, uh, Weaver comes across Kismet, a balance thinker. And some other capes, including a dust tinker, and she takes Kismet's phone. Um, so now she's basically working with this group of capes to find Behemoth's target. <laughs> what the fuck is a dust tinker? Taylor says that was it was a really fun yeah. beat. Um, she she <laughs> Taylor says in in synchrony with Scott. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's like it's. I think it's cool. I think against we're, we're opening up the world again, and we have classifications that exist completely outside of the prt and their system that that taylor and maybe a lot of other people don't even know about i think it's a really cool little beat yeah right um i wanted to point out this next part though okay um, because uh the person that that i think it is kismet right that she comes across um i'm not sure who's talking here exactly but i think it's kismet yeah okay um he he basically says uh, he thanks her for getting him off the building because he's a thinker. So he was one of the thinkers on top of the building um, and she saved him and he says, thanks. And Taylor responds with, I didn't respond taking off rude, maybe, but taking the time to respond was stupid when there was so much going on, making me wait while he thanked me was similarly dumb. And <laughs> Taylor, I, I love you. Uh, remember when like, like many many arcs ago she was complaining about how no one ever thanked her um she does all this good stuff and no one ever appreciates it and now someone takes the time to thank her for something she's done and she's like i don't have time for this yeah oh it's so lame yeah (laughs) it's really great yeah i I agree it's i think that's a consistent double standard with her of of not knowing how to react when people thank her but always wanting to be thanked so she checks in on her team, who are still working on slowing Behemoth and creating cover, but she redirects them to aim for controlled collapses instead. Yeah, so we, we've seen the team kind of, they're fully in it now, right? Like, we, we did that whole golem arm ramp up thing, but they're they're down there, and they're in it. Yeah, yeah, they're in the thick of it. But she's she's left them, and I think it's interesting, she doesn't really, like, tell them what she's doing. She just kind of, like, heads off. Yeah, got to, other to, orders, bye-bye. Yeah, got, got a mission, yeah. So she she gets a sensor from Particulate and deduces that the sensor detects energy, and she's rapidly able to find a massive energy source, and her small group heads down into another subtraining complex and ultimately into a void. It's time for my favorite part of the arc, Matt, because this is awesome. So they find a parahuman, disheveled and haggard, dressed in fine purple robes, in front of a pair of suspended discs with light flowing between them. And Kismet seems terrified of this guy, Fierce, a guy who can send things back in time. 
He's piping a beam of light in a loop, causing it to redouble itself each time, building up a huge amount of energy. One of Firsay's assistants kills Kismet casually when he says the wrong thing. Yeah, and I think it's, as we get into this conversation, I think it's really important that we we make sure to call out how much the story specifically establishes just how terrified of this guy we should be just how threatening he is assumed to be and i like what kismet says here that he's one of the reasons the american girls prt can exist kismet says when they talk about disbanding it the prt only reminds them that monsters like this lurk elsewhere monsters like this the kind that's too smart for all of our good kismet says it's like such a great way to establish the threat of this man yeah, right. And he's he's just a wonderful character, especially how he contrasts with with other characters. Um but so <laughs> so he introduces himself sort of and he characterizes himself and his group as being part of the good cold capes, I, I suppose. That's my interpretation anyway. Basically, they're equally ruthless in pursuing their goals, but fighting the other capes who foment crime and corruption is is their task. So they're like an outside the law force that's like working towards taking down corruption and crime and that believes that their way to do things is is the best way for the city and the world at large. Something yeah. something I mean, like that. I mean, you can almost say that he's sort of a leader in the in the underworld of, of his of his own city. But, yeah. but but he sees himself as a force for good. Yeah. Something. Huh. Yeah. That's an I interesting. It doesn't sound too familiar to no, me. No, me neither. I let's just, just let's just move on. Let's just move on. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I love their dialogue overall this this like cold civility that comes from him yeah and 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 i think we're gonna get into the details of this dialogue and the the conversation they have uh in a bit and and, and in the next chapter but i I wanted to talk about the language that is used itself and and the purpose it has because uh fierce is that how you say the name that's how that's how we're doing it he he's indian because they're in india um and he does speak english but not perfectly he's he's not he's fluent i guess but he is not he's not perfect at language yeah um but so why so I i think the thing you have to do especially when you're analyzing literature like this is everything has a purpose everything was a decision why did wild bo have him speak like this why did wild bo not he could easily have just made him an indian guy who speaks perfect english um, but he didn't, this was a, a conscious choice. So, so what choice, what does this choice serve in the story we're doing? And I think it does a couple things. I think first, just like you said, it reinforces that coldness of his talk. He's not speaking proper English. So his words come out kind of stilted and unnatural to the ears of an English speaker. Um, it, and it reinforces that coldness that, that, that kind of civil indifference, maybe, um, the, the fact that he can't even find the correct words to describe what he's doing and what he's willing to do kind of separates us from him a little bit. Um, but it also forces Taylor into kind of an active role in the conversation because several times throughout this conversation, she's having to correct him when he uses an improper word. So, so he says cleanse. Um, but, but that's not necessarily what he means. He means skur and, it's this way to kind of subtly shift Taylor from the role of just being a passive listener to actively taking part in the conversation, actively taking part in the, the, the thing, which I think kind of foreshadows her involvement in the plan. And I think it's just this brilliant way of doing this. And I, I liked it so much. Yeah. I think you're onto something there. Um, 
um, in particular, this idea that Taylor is all about communication and cooperation. And this person she's talking with, they have a communication barrier. It, it's a subtle one, yeah. but it, but it's present. And, and it's yeah. something that she has to work around. And I think it's actually perhaps another sign of character growth that she is able to successfully bridge the gap in communication with this person where where the, the, they are having a hard time understanding each other but she's she's patient she doesn't she doesn't escalate in fact she she keeps the situation from from escalating she actively she act i mean we're going to get to that in a second but she actively avoids escalating the situation so she can so she can coordinate with this guy and i think that's a big deal yeah i think you're absolutely right so yeah weaver suspects that his time bomb won't work uh, because Behemoth will anticipate it and will, if anything, cause it to backfire and be worse than nothing in some way. But Fierceau thinks that it's worth the risk, even if it means the destruction of the city or all of India. And to reference our boy Defiant from a couple arcs ago, well, that's a choice you just made for a whole bunch of people. Yeah, and the chapter um, ends as he reaffirms that Weaver is to stay here. Yep, so here we go. Let's... Let's have a chat. Yep. So they watch on monitors as Behemoth trudges toward the defenses and, and through them. They use a variant, uh, the, the defenders use a variant on the skitter clock locker maneuver, and the triumvirate capes try to push Behemoth into the suspended clock blocked uh, wires that they've set up. So even when Taylor's not there, her things continue to make differences in the battle. Like, I, I love this idea that everyone's observed these things she's come up with, and they're like, hey, that's that's really clever yeah and we didn't even talk like for the last couple arcs clock blocker has had things that shoot out of his gloves right that basically do the same exact thing so right. first he had just the, the pieces of paper that he uses and now he has these wires that shoot out of his gloves that's definitely straight from skitter and it's it's really great like it's it's i i like it so much she's had such an impact on everything yeah, this is the kind of thing where it's just, it's a tiny beat in the background. You know, it's literally in the background on a TV that they're watching while they're having this other scene. Um, and, and it's just reinforcing that. It's, it's wonderful. So Weaver tries to communicate again with Fersay, and he admits that he hasn't slept in three days due to the preparations. And this is actually making it even harder to communicate. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, she appeals to the ways in which they're similar the need to be uncompromising in fighting monsters that they both come to appreciate. She emphasizes the need for communication. So we have it right there coming from her lips. Yeah. And, and this is like, this is where the conversation moves com from good to, to great. Um, because Taylor clearly very much sees something in fear, say that reminds him, uh, that reminds her of, of her, of her herself and, and kind of vice versa. He does the same thing. This, this necessity to be the ruthless, this willingness to take sacrifices in the name of something good. Uh, but, but as much as they are similar, they are also different. And, and Taylor, you're right, really does show her growth here. Um, really does show that, that communication, the importance of communication has become front and center in her life. And it's, it's, it's subtle and it's, like there's there's times when you still like want to go back and and say oh Taylor no what are you doing, and I I actually did that the first time I read through the first time I read through this I was pretty negative on Taylor and then you go back and you study it and you read it and you see the subtle parts of what Taylor's doing and and how she's changed and it's just so so wonderful. Yeah yeah I I agree I th I think that's this is this is a great moment in this in this arc. Uh, Fersay responds that he's been doing this for 10 years. So he's, he's 
basically kind of farther along the road than she is. And this idealism or, or faith, as she as she calls it, that Weaver is displaying has long ago been burned out of him. He would take a one in three chance of killing Behemoth, even if it costs the city. And she notes that it's easier to say such things than to do them. Uh, but he says that he's, in fact, done it before. Basically, he sacrificed his family to keep a monster gone. And and yeah, this is here's the genius of this whole thing. Because like we've been talking about, we've been pushing these beats about how similar they are. And that's not entirely true. Because just like you said, Fearsay is further down the path. Fearsay is is what Taylor could eventually become. Fearsay is Taylor much further down on that slippery slope we've been talking about. The, the devoid of idealism, the hatred of humanity. Still still trying to do the right thing, of course. Always, always trying to do his best to help people. But but at a cost greater than anything we've seen before willing to kill anyone who would stop her. Like, like someone, someone just walks away to leave. Nope. You have to die. Uh, willing to sacrifice an entire city for a 33% shot. This, this is, this is a potential future for Taylor. If she continued down that path, we've been talking about. Right. Uh, I love it. Cause, cause a lot of Taylor's motivations involve protecting like she wants to protect people in the abstract, but a lot of it, a lot of her specific motivations involve protecting people she cares about. Yeah. And, and Fierce is basically saying here, like, I would kill everyone I care about if, yeah. like, like f- f- for a chance at killing Behemoth. So he's, he's essentially valuing that abstract, you know, value to humanity over the people near him, which, you know, is like technically correct, cold hearted utilitarian reasoning which Taylor sort of often advocates for things like that, but that's not quite how she operates. She's, she, she very often operates much more toward um, protecting her important people. So, yeah. And you can kind of see, you can see how he's gotten here. Right. And you can see that the, that the, the world has just beaten any kind of idealism out of him that, that, yeah, at this point, I don't care about anything except for the, the, the big picture. And that's the most important thing. Everything else is expendable uh, to a point where I'm willing to take a one in three shot. Yeah. A one in three shot. Two thirds of the time, everyone I love is going to die, but worth it. Yeah. Right. Worth it. And that's, I mean, it's devastating. It's awful. It's terrible. And you're like, and, and I, I love that Taylor, like helps him, but like there's, it's so complicated and, and we'll, we'll get into it, but um this it's so it's so good yeah I, I mean my interpretation is that he's basically like he doesn't have any plan to keep the blast contained actually so like no 100 of the time his attack is going to kill everyone it, it, the, the one in three is actually whether it's going to kill behemoth or not so right so it's yeah it's like he's he's literally just shoot he's said that's the choice he's making I, that's my take anyway maybe it's no, more I complicated think right. than that i okay. think you're right all right so Particulate tries to make a play to disable the time bomb, uh, but Weaver betrays him, pretending to go along with it while using Silk to throw off his aim. And uh, I, think, I think that she stops him from being summarily executed, but we're not sure. Uh, it's really interesting that Weaver very likely did set him up uh, to put herself in Fierce's goodwill, uh, as he says. Um, but she sort of wasn't conscious of her own plan. And and she notices at this point that there are silk threads all over the room that that are like tactically set up to be useful, and she didn't actually do it intentionally. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, this is why I think this is so complicated and so nuanced because we have this moment where Taylor betrays this guy and, um, leads him on just to make fierce more confident in her. Um, but yeah, but she doesn't do it consciously, but, but does that matter? But like there's so much going on here and Taylor basically is deciding that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do like, I, I think you're right. You talked that this is, this is an intentional avoiding escalating the situation that, um, we had no idea if this guy's plan of attack was going to work. It could have backfired and just set the thing off right away and everyone would have died. Um, yeah, so, so, so her choosing not to go with, with the violent option here is very different. But to do that, she has to um, use trickery and lying and, and betrayal. And I think like she's going to see this as kind of a, a, a blend of the two sides of her. And I, that's that's kind of what it feels like it is. It's like it's it's falling into that doing a wrong thing, but for a good reason type thing. But not necessarily. I don't know. I don't know. Like it's so. I don't even know how to talk about it. Yeah, it's even more muddied again by the fact that like how much of this was her and how much of this was some passenger like like reflex almost. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's. I. I think it's fun to think about. I don't know if I can like say anything really really smart or or, or clarifying about it. No, I think I think that the most important thing with this is is that she does something that on the surface looks very bad, but how much choice did she actually have in the matter? Um, because a because it was a subconscious move by some foreign passenger. By b, she's not really in a situation to solve any problems here. Like she's this guy is going to do this. And anyone that disagrees with him is instantly killed by a teleporting guy that can break the, the Manton effect. So, like, how much of a choice does Taylor actually have right. in this moment? Um, yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of confidence in Particulate's plan anyway. It's like, what, are you going to just, like, shoot the portal? Like, isn't yeah, that just going to release the energy? It'll totally work. Kill everyone? It'll totally work. Yeah. Yeah, that's how energy works, right? It just dissipates harmlessly. Yeah. Well, he, he's the tinker, so who knows? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so of course doing this makes Fearsay actually trust her less, um, but she does claim that she did it for a good reason, that Particulate was a reckless, chaotic element. Yeah, but that's, Taylor, like, is always the reckless, chaotic element, and, like, and I think, I think it has to be because, because she, she identifies with him so much that she sees him, she sees herself in him. And so she recognizes a, a difference and a change and, and the way to approach this thing. Right. Because, because we have this thing where um, she, she, she says, she, she smiles a little behind her mask. This guy was borderline unhinged, too much power and too unstable a package. And I almost liked him. Which, yeah, we tend to like people that remind of us of ourselves, right? Right. I mean, I'm pretty sure people have like almost used the words too powerful and too unstable a package for taylor yep yeah uh so she asks him to let her go at least wait until she gives the signal to attack before he releases his um his his energy and he agrees to give her 15 minutes before he before he does it to set something up yeah and i i love how how she appeals to him here it's probably some of taylor's best arguing yet i think um because she says 
but your doubt, your lack of faith, it's something safe. No disappointments, no fear, things won't work out. Risk that. Risk losing that. I did when I became a hero. And he says, no, su- not, not such a hero, bargaining with the madman, turning on an ally. I'm realizing I'm a pretty lousy hero, I agreed, but I'm trying. I made a leap of faith. I'm asking you to as well. And I love, I love that so much. I'm trying. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, this, I mean, and Taylor kind of reflects later on how, on how she, she found, she says during the behemoth fight, she found this middle ground between Skitter and Weaver. And, and I think, I think this is that exactly happening where, where she's like, look, I, I know, I'm not good at I'm not good at being a hero. I admit that. I know that. Like but but I'm not going to stop trying that. I'm not I'm not giving up on that path and I'm just going to try to do my best. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's definitely I know I'm not good at being a hero, but I choose not to be a villain. Right. And that that choice is is everything. Um and 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 I think that's where I stand on this whole thing. And I think it's it's very interesting to look at this thing we get in the interlude that she's going to get in trouble for this. This decision is going to get her in trouble um, with the PRT. They're unhappy with the fact that they were not looped in. But if you think about it, only a person halfway between these two things could have made this decision, could have done this, could have decided to work with this guy in, in an effort to control his destruction rather than fight against it. And, and in this middle ground, she finds success. And I think that's so important. Yeah, because Kismet is essentially being a, you know, classical hero response of like, this guy is bad. And he just gets like killed for for basically expressing that sentiment. Um, yeah. So she, 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 yeah. she's she's a notorious villain and that actually works in her favor here. Yeah. So outside, um, she feels out the area, finding a number of wounded capes scattered in the dark and smoke. Behemoth almost gets sucked into Legea's water portal, but fights his way out, and she dies shortly thereafter. Rhyme is also dead, and Scion is apparently heading uh, the wrong direction now, which just is a kick in the gut at this point. Okay, so so this this is the point in the battle where everyone's at their lowest, right? Right? Hang on, I'm, I'm getting... It's just breaking news bulletin coming in. Um, it says, uh, Scott, you haven't even seen what a low point looks like yet okay okay mm. all right then all right. we'll just carry on well okay so uh her wards team is pretty mad at her for leaving weaver is focused on finding somebody in command who can coordinate the first day attack with and doesn't really have time for them i wait so she, when she's catching up with the wards and what's happened with them there's there's a really subtle beat here that, that kind of is what we talked about earlier where we see we see how cuff's doing and and it says uh, her, her voice was oddly level in contrast to how she'd acted in the earlier fight. And, and Taylor asked, what happened? What happened to Tecton? And she says, clipped by another cape, still with no emotion, no effect. So here's the, the, the scared girl who was green and new and, and terrified. And now she's not freaking out anymore, but she just seems emotionally dead. Yeah. She's just traumatized now. Yep. Hooray. Yay. Now she'll be a good cape. <laughs> so um, Taylor takes Annex with her uh, inside her costume, between her costume and her skin, and meets up with the Undersiders. That's a weird beat, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Just climb inside my skin. No time for modesty. 
Um, I, I did like as as Taylor Lee, she gives this mini speech to them where she says, reach deep inside, find your second wind, find your third wind if you can rendezvous with me over there if you can make it in eight or ten minutes. And it's just like Taylor, the leader, once again, given a, a Chevalier type speech. Yeah, that is a good speech. That's an unusually good speech for her. Yeah. So she finds Exalt, the Texas Protectorate Cape, and passes the information along to him. Exalt and Dispatch follow her on to meet the young man uh, to ask them for help, but they refuse. She senses that Behemoth is quite close to the Undersiders and that they aren't aware of it due to the smoke. Weaver nips them with bugs to get them moving. The young man move in to attack Behemoth, uh, their power enhancement aura boosting the defending wards and Undersiders. Yeah, and this is... This is the cruelty of Wildbow here because we have all these people coming together, communication. We're putting aside our differences. We're working together. It's like, yes, we're finally going to mount a sufficient defense. We're going to do it. And then, and then we get the turn. Yep. Because there's, there's so much, there's so much desperation. It, it turns from this moment of, of, of like, yes, to, to desperation because suddenly yeah. Weaver sees Imp is pinned down. Um, she was trying to aid a downed Yangban member. And now Behemoth has has noticed her and is pounding her hiding place with his with his flame. And and as he slowly encroaches, his kill aura is also nearing her. And the defenders fight desperately to keep him back. We've got just the, some of the, some of the most intense, like frantic writing as as Citrine, Golem, Foil, Perry, and Revel, the Yangban, all unleash their powers to just try to, to, to push him back, distract him, anything they can do. And and it no it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Are you gonna make me read this, Scott? I am. I God am. damn it. <laughs> Fuck it, Regent said, his voice almost inaudible. He was looking at Imp. Regent, I said. When he rose to his feet, I raised my voice. Regent Hey shit crumb, Regent hollered, backing away from cover. Easy And then And then what happens, Matt? He's struck by lightning and killed instantly. So let's just Let's talk about this. Let's just be emotional for a couple minutes here. Okay. Um, so I think, I think I remember predicting that Regent would sacrifice himself in a heroic way, um, back in one of our mailbag episodes. Uh, I am so happy and sad at the same time at how this turned out. Um, this was so well set up. We've been talking about it the rest of the arc that he he in this moment stands up and provides a distraction and does it in the most regent way ever um what do you think he was gonna say i don't know i think i think you i, I don't know i've, I've actually something I've, hilarious yeah yeah something hilarious that we'll never get to hear and that's the saddest part isn't it yeah yeah um yeah. um somebody and and i'm i'm exactly as we speak looking up the name of the person because i want to give them credit um it was king bob 12 <laughs> um of course it was yeah, of course it was of course it was king bob he, he points out that this is this is a three beat because at the in the very first bakata fight um alec s- distracts bakata from gru um, basically sort of almost sacrificing himself for Gru. And then when Echidna has him in her, in her mouth, instead of yelling for Rachel to come help, he yells for her to, to run. 
basically allowing himself to be consumed, even though Rachel was going to come try to save him. And then this is the third time that he's that he's ventured himself as a trade for an undersider, and this time it costs his life. Um, and 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 that's that's really awesome because that's it's not something like it's not something you think about as being him because that's not the self that he puts forward. Like he doesn't he doesn't yeah. think of himself that way either. He's just the the part of him that is that is a traumatized 15 year old kid really like loves these guys and, and actually really values that they've accepted him and that he's one of them. And he's actually been willing to put himself on the line for them all this time. And, uh, and he doesn't value himself that highly is, is the fact of it. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't have much to live for kind of for himself because his, his life is kind of muted but I, I imagine in this moment him just thinking like it's better for Imp to, to go on than for me to go on because she's like a, a whole person and, and making that choice. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's amazing that this is this is he is a, a, a rapist. Um, he is a murderer. Uh, he takes control of people. And steals their agency by taking control of their body and, and somewhat tortures them as well. Um, and, and yet somehow here at the end, he is a person that sacrifices himself for the people he cares about. He is a hero as well. And the fact that we can have this character that is this, that is this complicated, that has this many different sides, that you still, you still care about, that you still like in his own way, um, even notwithstanding all the terrible things that he's done in his past it's yeah it's remarkable writing yeah i mean it's a it's a classic redemption arc where yeah the, the things that he did in his past were 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 almost a different life and 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 he's he's not fully equipped to do a real redemption but he's he's doing his own he's doing the best redemption that he can do having the mental faculties that he has i think yeah and it's just like he joined like he joined the undersiders to become a better person, which is like Taylor joined this group, wanted to be a hero, joined this group and, and had to leave the group because she was, didn't like the person she was becoming. But him for him, this made him into this person. Yeah. And she's at least partially responsible for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. I think we did mention before that, that, that I suspect that she's one of the people who he is, trying to be more like um and yeah 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 so yeah and and it works because it would be it would be even it would be even beyond wild though for that not to work um yeah so so weaver sends her flight pack over to imp to retrieve her because she can remote control it with her bugs and the defenders band together and retreat to regroup Dispatch then uses his power to create a bubble of accelerated time for all of them to plan together. And we, we have this lull um, of, of, of silence suddenly after after all of that. And Weaver can't even trust her voice at first, but she she gets control of herself. And, and then we see her start to put together a plan. Oh, my God. I love the moment with her voice so much. She's like her friend just died and she thinks she's common centered and and she internally thinks she's fine and her voice betrays what's going on. 
and it's perfect. She's like she in this bubble. We specifically point out that within the bubble, she loses all control of any of the bugs outside of it. So she's with her power. She's basically without her power. She she just has a few bugs that are in her suit, and and her voice breaks and her emotion comes forth. And it's it's partially the the, the devastation of where they are in the fight, but it's part of that's that Alec is dead, and it's so it's so great. Yeah. Yeah. This is, she, she's always so like tightly controlled that, that even just the small show of, of emotion is, is too much. And, and I, I, I mean, for, for me, the thing that kind of kills me is, is when, when somebody offers her, offers her condolences and she, and she like sh- shakes her head and it's like, she can't even say what that means. She's, yeah. She's just like, I, I, I can't, I can't face that right now. So we're just going to go on with the fight. Yep. Yeah. So so then they they emerge from the slowed time bubble and they execute the plan. Two of Rachel's dogs stretch a chain between them and run toward Behemoth. Dispatch explains the plan to Idolin. Golan creates a large number of hands um, to to hold him in place, I believe, and um, and she drapes a power line over them with with her bugs. And Citrine is dampening the fire attack. So basically, there's sort of a a complicated plan to to keep him in place it seems yeah yeah we come out of this bubble and everyone's working together and and idolin's here now we have a plan and for the first time in this whole damn arc there's a real twinge of of hope as we see people execute this plan and yep. it's amazing and it's especially gratifying when we see the dogs with the chain uh which we now see has been improved by foil's power reach behemoth and just cut through his legs without resistance. Um, Idolin adds a powerful aerokinetic attack to keep him from reacting to this. And then the dogs reverse and jump and cut through his, his knee, basically cutting one of his legs off at the knee. Fucking cut his leg off. Fucking Endbringer. It's working. Everything's happening. Yes. 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 And then Idolin creates a cylindrical shield around behemoth, something inviolable and Fierce's weapon fires within the shield. Yes, Regent sacrificed the plan. Taylor's decision to decide with Fearsay. It's all been worth it because everyone worked together and they did it. And, and except everything except the skeleton of Behemoth is scoured away, but he's already healing, glowing with radioactive light. Well, fuck. And then, and then Scott, we haven't even got to our little point yet. Twenty-four, twenty-four point five. Weaver thinks about how this attack on New Delhi is a microcosm for what the Endbringers have been doing to civilization, keeping people constantly on their heels, unable to coordinate and recuperate. Yeah, and it's true. And, and the bastards just keep coming. It's what Taylor says. They just keep coming no matter what. Yep. So Weaver convinces her team to fall back to the temple where they can at least hand off the wounded. Alamo, Alamo, Alamo. Matt, you you know what that means now because you went to the Alamo. I do, although I still don't understand why we talk about Alamo so much, but even as <laughs> a Texan. Texas is big. Yeah. So after a brief interaction with Idolin, Behemoth, Behemoth uh, changes his tactics again, attacking. Weir's team runs and Behemoth burrows at this point, which uh, we haven't seen him do, I believe, in this fight. Yeah. And, and, and Taylor looks at the injured Idolin and compares his costume to Regents. That's random. Yeah. Almost as if like his death is like really, really weighing on her. 
and she's refusing to let herself actually sort out and it's just poking out in every possible place yeah right that's that that is a really interesting beat there how how it's she's she's it's like that shake of her head where she's like refusing to look at it but her mind is not going to let her off the hook but here she does ponder regent for a bit and i wanted to talk to you about this for a second um because she so, so she says like that 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 she allowed herself to form a kind of intimacy with the undersiders and it might as well have been a reason we'd survived this far but she says regent hadn't established that kind of in- intimacy with us except maybe for imp um he'd hidden so much i'd only glimpsed the serious disordered personality that lurked beneath the outer image of the lazy disaffected teenager had only seen traces of the part of him that just didn't care that he couldn't enslave a person's body and leave their mind as little more than a helpless observer and beneath that aspect of himself, he had something else, something that had driven him to distract Behemoth so Imp might live. You know, th- th- there's a lot of truth to hear, but I really think the Taylor's kind of selling Regent a little short here. W- w- what do you think? Yeah, so like, uh, I feel that she consistently tries to widen the gap between herself and Regent because she doesn't want to look at the ways in which they're similar. Like like seriously disordered personality come on taylor you've done way more fucked up things than him by this point um at least he got out from like since he got out from out from under his dad's thumb anyway um he's he's been a like a less crazy person than than she has yeah um like the in, in terms of you know just using his power like he he's actually largely listened to everyone when it comes to not using his power in in kind of the the maximally abusive way that he can that he can use it um you know he it's what he did to shadow soccer wasn't great but there's also the argument that like actually what he did was he scared her off and got rid of a really dangerous foe in a way that didn't kill her which you'd think taylor would approve of in in the abstract i mean yeah i think just generally the 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 fact that his power takes control away from people is the most terrifying thing in the world to her and so she thinks of his power as being terribly abusive um yeah. but that's like her bias i mean it, it it is a it is a scary power but her bias is making him out to be worse than he is i think yeah and and, and this line where she said the regent hadn't established that kind of intimacy with us is one of the things that I push back pretty strongly mm-hmm. with because he he very clearly has. It's just not in the same kind of way that other people can because he can't do emotions like that. He he just doesn't understand those emotions and can't express them in the way that most people can. So I, I just don't think that's true at all. And I think the three beat that you pointed out upon his death kind of proves that, that yeah. these are very important people to him. And he really tried hard in his own way to make himself better and make himself more like these people and i think i think maybe taylor just really doesn't understand what it's like inside his head because yeah because she she got inside information on how rachel operates and that completely changed her way of of relating to rachel and it led to them being bffs despite the fact that rachel is really really hard to to you know form rapport with like that and that's why rachel kind of kind of loves her because She's like the one human who can actually connect with her on, on a level that makes sense to her. But she doesn't understand that Regent is just like Rachel in his own way. Like she, he's got broken circuitry caused by probably both his dad and his own powers. And 
you know, maybe Imp was the only person who who reached out to him on the level that he needed to be reached out to. But that doesn't mean he's like they, they call him a they call him a sociopath. I think that's a bit of a, a simplification. He he's someone who's a victim yeah. of powers, and yeah. and it looks like sociopathy, but it's it's more complicated than that. Well, I think you're exactly right that that Taylor took it upon herself to reach out to Rachel and to find out how Rachel worked and to crack Rachel's code. And, and it's something that she never did with Regent. And, and I think, I think it has to do with her, her general fear of his power. Um, I think it has to do with that. She, like you said, doesn't tries to distance herself from how similar they are. Um, but she never really made that effort with him. Um, and, and so to, to say that he never established that kind of intimacy, I just, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. All right. So she's being unfair to Alec. Yeah, there we go. Yep. <laughs> so at this point, uh, she warns Fierce that Behemoth is still alive and perhaps coming for him and says goodbye. They then bring the wounded into the temple and Weaver quickly heads to find Gru and Tattletail. Imp tells them that Regent is dead and uh, Gru and Weaver try to out guilt burden each other. Yeah, as they do. That's their their MO. Yep. Um I this this full team moment though, uh without Lisa, of course, all of them 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 talking together. I really I really love the details of the scene. Once again, we see Taylor's breath hitch and once again that catches her off guard. She wasn't prepared for it because like it's her her talking is betraying the way she feels even though she feels okay on the inside. Um and it, she, because she's pushing away her emotions, but when she talks, those emotions win. It's really touching in a, in a Taylor sort of way. Yeah. Um, and then this this perfect way that that they send they send off Regent, um, where everyone just says fuck. Yeah. And and Tattletale, of course, can't. She just nods. She just nods. But yeah. you got to think in her head. She's saying fuck. Yeah. She's nodding her fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's so good. I know it's done so well. So the uninjured undersiders head out, meeting the Chicago wards on the way. Wanton has lost an arm in the fighting. I don't think we saw that happen. Uh, I don't recall. No, no. Uh, Weaver asks Rachel to be there for Imp if she needs it, because Weaver's attention is going to have to be elsewhere. Um, and Rachel doesn't really understand what is being asked of her. So Tecton human explains to Rachel that this means um, like active listening, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this really sad moment and we're going to have this really desperate moment. But in between those, here's a comedy scene. So you don't want to kill yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's really good. I think it works very well. And we see Tecton once again being the guy that just means well. He's trying so hard to help. But but yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't understand Rachel in a way that, that Taylor does. And I think it is funny that he's explaining active listening, but not actively listening. Right. <laughs> um. It, I, 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 gosh, I like him and, <laughs> and he's so like, you see, he's so used to being good at this. Like his, like the text stops to point out that like, as he's talking, his like swagger and confidence, like build up, he, his posture improves. Like this is his element explaining these things to people. And it just, she, she says he's retarded. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he's completely He's completely vexed and, and flummoxed and and and, yeah. uh, and 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 Weaver is like, no, no, look, just which is which is a funny kind of beat where she gets to like 
be better than him at his job again. But yeah. it's kind of unfair. It's because she knows like the the trick with this one particular person. Yeah. Um. So so she explains kind of more usefully using dog metaphors how to actually be there for someone. And I think I personally think like this time she may have kind of gone too far and like been a little bit on the nose with equating Rachel's thoughts to dog thoughts to the extent that Rachel might even might like see what she's doing because you see you kind of see how she reacts to it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't get that on my read through, but I, I saw that you wrote that and, and looked through it again. And, and I guess you could interpret it that way. She's she's very frowny throughout the whole thing. Yeah, it's like with each with each subsequent thing Weaver says, she she instead of instead of being like, yeah, OK, I get it. She's she's like frowning more and more frowning more and more thoughtfully um, as if like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, th- that's how I visualize it anyway. Are you calling me a dog? Yeah. Are you saying, wait a, yeah. Not a, not a good time to be having that epiphany. <laughs> um, so Weaver finds the quiet uh, suspicious and orders her group to move in anticipation of a surprise attack. Promptly, the temple begins to rumble and Behemoth reaches the surface, shattering the surface catastrophically. The only nearby building, perhaps the only one in the city that survives is the temple itself due to the number of capes that are using their powers to reinforce it. Weaver expects maybe 70 or 80 capes are left in the whole battle. Okay, this has to be it, right? This is the low point now we've gotten there? I, I, I don't know. I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry to say, Scott. Um, the, the triumvirate takes center stage, and Weaver sees that one of Alexandria's irises is pink and uh, makes the connection to Pretender, finally. Well, that answers all those questions, doesn't it? Here we are five chapters later and we've gotten that. Um, So whatever Cauldron is planning, whatever they want to do, they needed Alexandria here. So they arranged this whole thing with Pretender we saw last arc just to to get him into her. And I mean, I I don't know if that's part of uh, Contessa's paths to victory or whatever. But um, but I guess this does confirm that Alexandria did not die. She's just brain dead. Um, which is really ironic, isn't it, Matt? Because out of all her powers, Alexandria said that her, her brain power was the most important one. Yeah. And it's that one that is taken from her. Right. Yeah. And now she's, now she's just a remote controlled flying tank, which, yeah, which is useful in an inbringer fight, but, uh, much less, much less powerful than the real Alexandria was. Yeah. So here we have, it's the last stand and the fight begins. And then the chapter ends, and reading it, Scott was like, what? We're going to have to wait until the next arc to find out what happens here? And I almost went crazy. But thank God for interludes. Yes. Although we don't immediately get our reprieve because our first interlude is Chevalier, but it's young Chevalier meeting the first class of wards. And we find that Chevalier actually sees auras and signs around other capes, hints about their powers or their triggers, perhaps. One ward who catches his, his attention is uh, the one in camo with a gun and knife gun in her hand. Oh, it's little baby Miss Militia. Yay. Aww. Um, so before we, 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 we get into the proper discussion, I did want to talk to you about, once again, go back to Worm is a serialized storytelling story and, and the advantages of this kind of storytelling. Um 
Wild Bo gets to shape the story as he writes it based on reader response and what people they like and what they don't. And he can change plans and move things around. And and this whole part, I think I think Chevalier as a whole, to me, and, and I, I could be just making this up, but feels like a character that was introduced and received pretty warmly by the audience. And, and it feels like Wild Bo said, okay, well, we'll make him more prominent then. We'll bring, we'll, we'll bring him to the fore and, and we'll make him a more important character. And that's, that's just what, cause like the way he was introduced at first just seems like casually just another character. And then we've seen him suddenly step into prominence and I, I, I could be talking out of my ass here, but that's just what it felt like to me. Yeah. I think there might be a case for that. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but um, definitely the first time this, this, cape in the in the knight armor is described we're we're not like given an indication of how important he is or, or is going to be yeah i i think regardless whether it's true for chevalier or not it is true for the, the this type of story as a whole and uh another advantage of of how writing this way can go yeah totally um yeah and i guess we have to talk about that he can see passengers and trigger events i i I want to take the time to say here I am not going to speculate on what each and every shadow means as we see them. For some of these side characters, I, I, I just don't care. The most interesting thing to me is what do the cauldron capes trigger events, shadow passengers thing looks like? And what does it mean when something or someone doesn't have one? That's the part that I'm interested in. Yeah. Did you notice anything like consistently different about the cauldron capes? Um shadows the the only one i i read through this a few times the only one that i think he specifically pointed out was what uh, heroes looks like which was like a, a giant thing that i think is supposed to remind us of the the thing we see during trigger events that like it's so big it doesn't even fit in the shadow he got and it's like writing down notes like the tinkering type stuff um but i i don't if i missed it i'm sorry but i i don't remember seeing specifics on what the other at least the triumvirates looked like we we know that idolans gives him headaches but i don't think it ever specifies exactly what it looks like yeah i, I think that's right i was just wondering if you noticed some some pattern that i didn't notice but yeah that, that makes no. sense um yeah, so uh, Hero is actually the one taking point in this in this little this little party, um, which is neat because I don't think we've seen hardly any of Hero. Um, maybe a small we amount. Him, we saw him die. Yeah, we saw. <laughs> it. Saw him like say a thing and then die. Yeah. Um, but the other three triumvirate capes, who I don't know what they were calling him at this point in time, frankly, but they're also there. Um, the quadrumvirate, uh, the, <laughs> the the ward with mouse ears, mouse protector uh nettles chevalier and, and just is kind of uh, a little bit aggressive with him and we know what happens to poor mouse protector in the future and it makes me sad all day yep poor yep. mouse protector yep that's... stay away from the little girl that wants to chop you up yep. mouse protector don't start a feud with ravager because do it you guys are getting up real close if you do do it um yeah mouse protector like it's one of the things that makes me laugh is I mean, I know I'm a horrible person, but, but like, it's such a, it's such a worm thing to, especially to like introduce her as a character. Cause we just, we just vaguely heard like, oh, she was like a Mickey Mouse themed, uh, really kind of like silly cape who this horrible, horrible thing happened to. And now, yeah. now we get to meet her and see that she was just a plucky young kid one day. And her, I think it says that her, uh, her shadow image is her laughing a lot. 
And I don't know what that means, but it makes me sad because <laughs> she seems happy. Yeah. So someone mentions that Chevalier is a vigilante who went after the Snatchers, a group of kidnappers who took his brother and then he took them out. Um, the way I interpret the story is that he took them out non-lethally, but I'm not exactly sure about that. Oh, yeah, definitely. He 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 totally relates to the girl who triggered when she for- was forced to death march and, and she executed every single person who had captured her with her new gun power. And he relates to her because he took them out non-lethally. You're, you're totally right. Yeah. Totally right. Maybe it was just that Alexandria was going to have to arrest him if he killed someone right in front of her, but he had killed other people before that. I, I There's actually no saying. I think you're probably right that that the final one was where he was about to cross the line and kill one. But I don't know. It yeah. seemed, his relation, his, his, his observation of Miss Militia's trigger event. And then immediately says, that reminds me of me. I'm going to go sit next to her. Was yeah. Just jumped out at me. Right. I did find it completely badass when, 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 uh, when someone goes like, Oh, was, was he a cape? And he goes, I didn't give him a chance to show me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he, he extricates himself from the conversation and brings a drink to Hana. See, now the fact that he likes Miss Militia makes me like him even more. Yep, that's that's how that works. Um, and then we have a toast, Alexandria said, stepping forward, to the first Ward's team of America. To second chances, Hero said, a brighter future, Idolan added, and to making good memories, Legend finished. And we see here... That original mission statement for the wards, that original purpose of the wards, a safe place where kids with powers can come to get a second chance to live a normal life, to grow up in safety while they learn their new powers and maybe one day transition to help save the world. Um, And of course, we know that that's not what the wards ends up being at all. And I love as, as we end this beat, as if to respond to the likelihood of that happening, Chevalier observes all the phantom images shrouding everyone in the room. Uh, these shadows, these shadows of people's trauma, their passengers, a reminder that as long as we're wreathed in those shadows, that a brighter future that Idol- Idolan wants is, uh, is that, that, that those memories, those second chances, they're just, they're just really kind of impossible. Yeah, right. It all seems very naive, especially in light of the the immediate following, you know, paragraph where yep. where we skip forward and he's he's on the he's on the flight craft uh, pre- uh, preparing for the behemoth fight, looking over the list of inbringer attacks, um, which are just this very long list of of dated attacks, and, and he thinks about how the wards were supposed to be a safe place, like you said, and, and now they're regularly attending inbringer attacks out of both both social expectation and actual need yeah i don't think it really uh, sunk into me like how often they came until we see them like written down um it's just this long long list and and chevalier stops it at 2003 it's 2011 so there was almost a decade more of attacks that we didn't even get to see listed out i mean this is just constant regular intervals like it's crazy yeah right um and he, he thinks for a little bit about about Miss Militia and how she won't be joining the fight because uh, her her power. I, I guess they're basically saying her power doesn't really have synergy here, um, and and how they dated briefly. But he still uh, appreciates her despite them being broken up. Yeah, they said that uh, the Brockton Bay as a whole is sitting out. Um, Clock Blocker comes because I think he's useful, but yeah, right, right. But right. that's I think that's it. I don't think anyone else from the Brockton Bay wards 
or protectorate comes. Yeah, we, we certainly don't see them, I think. Yeah, yeah. But so I think this is once again an image that superhero relationships just don't don't work out. Yep, but, you know, them still being friends seems miraculous, relatively speaking. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's because they're both great people and I love them. Yep. I, I did want to point out before we moved on that that uh, there's this beat as they're flying there where Chevalier and Rhyme and, and Exult are all, all talking about the PRT's expectations of him here, that that they want him to play up the leadership between the three, that like he's going to toss them some softball questions to get the ball rolling, that, that even here with an Embringer, PR is so important to the PRT. Um, and it's like this image that like everyone here is fighting this battle, but at home, the PRT is forced to already start preparing for the next one. And that's like the difference between a soldier and on the ground and, and the leadership that supports them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's neat that we get to see that aspect of his life. Yeah. Um, and, and as he lifts his gun blade, we get an explanation of his power for the first time. I think he blends the properties of three blades into one, taking advantage, uh, to taking the advantageous properties of, of weight, sharpness, hardness, size, and, and trading them off against each other, um, kind of dynamically according to his needs at that moment. Yeah, I this is really cool. I like I like this explanation a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we skip again to the point after the Yangban have come by the headquarters to talk to him, and he talks with a PRT functionary named Keen. Yeah, um, who also is a cape, right? Yeah. Chevalier sees that. It's a secret, but he can see it. Um, we were all like, no, you can't have any any capes in the PRT. It ruins everything. Well, here's another one. Yeah, right. It, uh, that made me realize, like, I bet it's, it must be interesting for him just walking around town seeing who's a cape out of costume. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he talks with Accord and Tattletale about the strategy. Accord criticizes the plan, and Tattletale mentions her idea that she suspects the Inbringers have some kind of plan or strategy themselves. Yeah. And, and the last thing Accord will get to do is tell someone that their plan is bad. And then have them not listen to him. <laughs> Such is the life of poor Accord. Yeah. So I, I, I love that his shadow is like an old computer. That's Yeah. Yeah. And hers is like a many-eyed creature. Yeah. Or, yeah which just is like great. Stylized eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly they're ambushed by Cody. And we see the fight from Chevalier's point of view. Um, really not learning anything other than the fact that Cord actually stops Tattletail from using her gun. Interesting. Why why did he do that? I, I think like I'm pretty sure that he, he saved her life there and maybe even, you know, just kind of with his power knew that that was not a good idea. Um it's probably just gonna get her killed. Um which is probably in retrospect one of the things that makes me like him. Yeah, because we know how much he hates Tattletail. Yeah. Um, so if that is true, if that's why he did it, then yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, the only re- reason Cody didn't kill her was he had no, well, he did essentially kill her, and then he changed his mind and let her tracheotomy herself, but I'm pretty sure if she'd shot at him, he would have killed her offhand. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, so he wakes up in the temple um, in the hospital room with Tattletale at the present, more or less, and he struggles up despite horrific pain, and she helps him dress in his armor while telling him Behemoth is artificial, created to look scary. She also mentions that he has a core and tells uh, tells him where it is. 
Yeah, and, and I like I like this beat because because like the PRT, that's why I brought up the earlier one. Lisa isn't just trying to solve the mystery of how to live in this battle. She's working on other mysteries. She's thinking about tomorrow's fight and the next and the next and and why these people are holding back. Why why they are created to look artificial? Why do they look scary? And and Chevalier's just like that's not going to help us win this one. But Lisa's job is to think about tomorrow, whereas Chevalier's job is to think about today. And I, I think that's a good difference. Yeah, and and yeah, and Lisa can't can't really fight. This is this is yeah. This is her wheelhouse. Yeah, um, yeah. So Chevalier limps his way down the hall and down the stairs, which is really tense. Actually, just this this segment of somebody walking down a hall and walking downstairs. You're you're on the edge of your seat. Um, yes. And and he thinks about how he's a bit like Behemoth, how he's like relentless and implacable by nature, um, due due to the nature of his trigger event. Also, perhaps. And he makes it outside and limps toward Behemoth and uh, fires his cannon blade to to kind of scrape off the healing that's happened at, at his leg. Um, this fucking man. Yeah. <laughs> this guy. He's fueled by his revenge. He, he picks up his big fucking weapon. He's got a stomach sliced open. And he walks up to this giant monster and says, fuck you. I'm Chevalier. <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah. So Defiant then approaches awesomely and supports Chevalier as he as he trudges toward him. Um, yes. And then Chevalier walks into the kill aura, assisted by Usher's power, which we don't, I don't know if we exactly know what it is, but it's fine. We, we understand that it's protecting him on some level. Um, yeah. And he does some damage, but not enough uh, with his with his gun blade. Then a combo attack from the under Chicago wards leveraging foils power cuts a really big piece out of him kind of really close to where his core is yes and we're seeing every like chevalier walks out here and everyone's rallying around him weaver comes up with another plan i'm assuming it was weaver's idea i don't think it's i don't think it's too far out of the realm of believability to say that she came up with this thing yeah and they executed it um my favorite part of all this though is as he's doing this walk as he's doing this thing his eyes meet weaver's um, who's, who's, he says, whose power glows really brightly. Um, second trigger event confirmed. Boom. Nailed it. Anyway, um, <laughs> he thinks back to that original purpose of the wards. He thinks back to that idea of second chances where, where and I love in this moment that he, this realization that Weaver joining the wards was almost filling and completing that fundamental goal that they had that this idea of it being a place for second chances for a place for you to rediscover and reinvent yourself. And I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's great to point out there. I hadn't thought of that. So as he's standing this close, his armor melts around him and he uses his power to just kind of shuck out of it. Um, certain at this point that he's basically just dead from the radiation and he stabs his sword up into this new wound stabbing as deep as he can go and it's and and just as he reaches the core his power completely fails and the sword just just separates and falls apart but it's enough matt it's finally enough that's right and as he collapses certainly he's going to die behemoth begins to retreat burrowing and just then and scion arrives and i think at that moment you're like oh way to be just perfectly late scion yeah um but then Scion provides some healing to all the capes that are present. And then he snatches up Behemoth and they watch as Scion just completely trounces him. 
drilling him with the solid golden beam on and on and on, tearing him apart, obliterating him, disintegrating him, killing him. Thanks, Zion. I would have appreciated this five fucking chapters ago. <laughs> Maybe Kevin Norton should have like stressed timeliness. Yeah. And you're helping people. Like like an ordering of priorities. Yeah. That would have been good. Yeah. Sure hope you got that cat out of a tree. <laughs> so the capes cheer with joy alongside the whole world. Yeah. One down, two to go. Well, and the, all the other S-class threats and, okay, and Cauldron too and, yeah, the slaughterhouse. Yeah, there's, okay, the world is still shit, but let's just have this, this moment. Yeah. Let's just, let's just have it. Yeah, let's be happy about this for at least like the first third of the next interlude. <laughs> um, I want to point out here that we don't see a shadow around Scion. Uh, there's no trigger event. There's nothing around him that we see. Just his his aura that he everyone else sees. Cool. So maybe we'll just talk about that in a little bit. All right. Sounds good. And then we move on to the final interlude 24.y, which is from various points of view. And is, in fact, a full cast audiobook production, which I recommend listening to. Man, I wish I had. I wish I had listened to this. I did not. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a good one. Uh, we skip between various characters in the aftermath of the, be- the behemoth fight. We start with the Chicago wards. They're collectively exhausted. And despite losing an arm, Wanton is psyched that they actually won. I like Tekton's explanation about how they've been hearing terrible things about the Endbringers for their whole lives. Um... And, and and so this is like really meaningful. And, but some of the others are so beaten down that they expect the other shoe to drop in some form or another. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I like this. Uh, it, it's hard to believe he's gone. It's like you're five years old and Leviathan appears for the first time and your parents have to explain that a bunch of people died. And it's because of these monsters. And yet nobody's figured out why. Um, that, you know, it, it, that made me think about like, I have young kids and I'm like, I'm going to have to explain like nine 11 and all these other horrible things to them at some point. And, yeah. and it's like, I, I don't know, for some reason that resonated with me. Um, I mean, for, no, I think, yeah, I, I think it, it's this, this fundamental truth that has existed in this world, that this thing happened, that these things happen and we can't explain why we can't explain how it just happens. And then suddenly there's a shift suddenly maybe it doesn't have to keep happening and that changes everything yeah right yes it gives you it gives you hope that you didn't even dare to hope for yeah so golem uh wonders if weaver might have a grudge against him due to his background uh we're not told anything more about that really although i think you like you said you'd already figured it out that he's talking yeah. about being kaiser's son yeah. Rachel and Weaver have fallen asleep in a cuddle pile with the dogs. That's just fucking adorable. Yep. Best friends forever. Yeah. We skip to Pretender piloting Alexandria. Uh, he and Satirical discuss their priorities. Pretender regrets that he has bigger fish to fry working for Cauldron relative, relative to what Satirical and the Vegas Capes are doing. He also mentions that Alexandria is almost a case 53 in her own way, as are the other Cauldron Capes. Yeah, very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. And I mean, we know this is an unnatural way to get powers as as far as the, the getting powers is a natural thing. But so that's an interesting way of, of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
there's a very minor this very minor beat we don't learn too much here um i think it's just confirmation like this is what happened with alexandria just in case you didn't fully get it um yeah yeah you're right and, and maybe setting some stuff up it seems i think the biggest confirmation here is that that we kind of get that that cauldron at least seemingly working towards saving the world yeah. is what we get here yeah i think also you could just you could draw out that like these two characters are really close uh satirical and, and pretender, oh, yeah, yeah. like which we kind of already knew i think but yeah. yeah based on satirical's reaction to what they were doing to pretender yeah yeah right uh, so then we read some parahumans online irc excerpts um and it's basically just the first people being unsure of what's up with data gra- gradually dribbling in about what happened yeah and i love every time we go to parahumans online because we just keep reinforcing how much it's just a game to these people. Um, we, we see the announcement that Scion killed Behemoth, and the person that announces it says it was absolute annihilation. And one of the people in chat changes his name to that immediately. He's now known as Absolute Annihilation. And they're discussing these real-world events like you discuss the latest episode of a TV show or or this very book that we have an entire podcast about. It's not real to them. Yeah, right. Or Or, or politics, for that matter. Yeah. yeah defiant we skip over to defiant and and he's wondering what it's like to not be a lone wolf because that's kind of been his nature for his whole life and he's anxiously waiting for dragon to reload because that's actually a bit a bit we skipped was that her body was destroyed um which everyone obviously saw <laughs> happen yeah um, so i don't um, know how they're gonna get around this one yeah yeah um so he's he's reloading her from a backup um and after modifying her code, the reload is not is not going too well, and the likelihood of a successful reload of the dragon that he's managed to know and love seems lower and lower. Um, and he, he knows that he could reload like a prior version of her, but it wouldn't be the her that he knows, and uh, and it could even still have the limitations that he'd removed, and then it would have to fight him. Yeah. Um, I, I, of course, I love the idea that the more human dragon becomes the less robotic she is and therefore the less likely or the less able to use these things these methods of surviving that she had before it's it's really great um i like defiant's worry here so much and and his his genuine love for dragon at this point is great and but i i, I do think it's it is something more than that that he's not just worried about getting her back we talk about he, he opens the section talking about being a lone wolf. So I think there's this real fear that like without her guidance, without her being there, he will revert to a person that he was before, a person that he really doesn't want to be anymore. Um, and, and we've kind of seen this reinforced every time they interact when he acts a certain way and Dragon kind of pulls him back and says, hey, hold on. Um, and he, he's not quite to where he wants to be yet. And, and he needs her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that moment of tenderness where he. He kind of like kisses his fingertips and presses them to the monitor and, and he's like weirdly self-conscious about it, but he, he, he does it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then he reflects on his conception of masculinity and femininity, which is something we've seen from him a few times that he's kind of a little bit old fashioned and, and how, <laughs> how he pissed off dragon by stating that she's the perfect woman. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Turns out Colin still can't understand artificial women. <laughs> like normal women um yeah it's it is it's this super dated information on on the pressures of being masculine that he he literally breaks out the madonna whore dichotomy 
yeah. in dragon and says, you're the best because you're both. <laughs> you're half of a whore. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the compliment. Uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting character beat. I like it a lot. I'm curious what the the reaction in the audience was like to the scene, because I can see wildly different interpretations of the scene um, having wildly different reactions. Yeah, I don't I mean, for me, it's just like, yep, that's the character. I don't don't really dwell on it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then so we skip over to Annex's point of view um, where he's he's in the hospital and we learn that nobody seems to have radiation poisoning. Uh, so I guess, yeah. Thanks, Sion. I guess. Yeah, I guess we can assume. And then on the news, people are giving Chevalier a lot of credit for this, um, but a large fraction of people aren't really celebrating at all because I think like like those awards, they're just like, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, can you imagine being so pessimistic and uh, like this goes to that whole lack of faith thing, right? That you can't, you're you're terrified of even being happy because. You, then you risk having that taken away from you. Right. Yeah. Um, that's so awful. Yeah. So then we skip over to Taylor calling Danny and uh, she's upset that he hasn't called her back. And she says it's, it's, it must be because he's afraid of her and he denies it. And it says it's more that he's getting his head around things. Um, although it's been quite a while, Danny, um, she's, she's happy that she's found a middle ground between Skitter and butterflies mode weaver um but now she's in trouble with the protectorate for some of her actions in the battle yeah i love i love what she says to him here um let's just read it all because this is great um you want to read it sure things aren't going to be like they were dad i don't want them to be i'm trying to put as much distance between the person i was then and the person i am now as i can i'm sucking pretty hard at it but i'm trying except maybe today i found a middle ground and it worked in a way that makes me proud and terrified and amazed and confused. And apparently, I'm in trouble for something I did. I'm in trouble because I was wearing a camera and they saw the footage. And I was walking that middle ground between the person I was and the person I want, the person they want me to be. And I did a lot of borderline sketchy shit just to get by. And they don't understand. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So this is going to be kind of our carryover beat into the next arc, I think. Um, we kind of leave this part about Taylor in trouble. We will go back to it again in the Glenn section a little bit here, but I love like I'm proud and terrified and amazed and confused. Um, I mean, that's like, that's growing up. That's literally growing up. Yeah. Like you're, you're becoming this new thing and you're not sure what it's going to be and, and who you're going to be. And it's scary, but it's fun and it's confusing, but it's exciting. And, I, I, she found this, this place where she feels like maybe she can get the best of both worlds. And I don't know if that's going to be true or not, but right now she found it and it, and it, it ended up working out for her at least in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the part at the end though, the part at the end when Danny doesn't, doesn't win the dad award. Yeah. Right. Um, when Taylor asks him to deny that he was afraid of her. And he pauses for just long enough for her to hang up. Yeah. And it was the, it says the pause was enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he hasn't called her and, and called her back in, in this much time is pretty stark. Um, suggests yeah. that, that he, he was indeed very much um, 
frightened by, by what happened. Of course he was. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like, of course he was. I think it's fair to be. I think he should have just been honest with her. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Yeah. He should have just been like, yep, you killed the guy right in front of me, sweetie. Yeah, it's <laughs> going to take some time for me to get through this. Yeah, right. So then we get more Parahumans Online stuff. Random people online are apparently now watching Weaver's body cam video. So I forgot that she had a camera on her. I don't know if you did the if you remember forgetting the first time you read. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I forgot. And then so you hear this and you're like going through your head all the stuff that she did. And you're like, uh-oh. Yep. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yep. So it turns out that Glenn was the one who released the video. And we're in his point of view, and he expects to be fired. Taylor arrives angry, uh, but helps unplug his computer. He argues that he released the video for a good reason. He says Weaver needs to be the harbinger of change. And he, he mentions the rule of three. Three times she's been forced into the public eye as the warlord Lord of Brockton Bay, as Slayer of Alexandria, and now here with this. She mentions that this is also the third time that she's hurt her friends. Yeah, so... What, Wild Bo likes three beats. Yep. Are we surprised? I think uh, I think this is explicit evidence that he <laughs> is doing things. Yeah. <laughs> of course. That he's doing things. <laughs> no, he's just writing words down. Yeah. They're meaningless. No, he's, he's um, just off the cuff. Yeah. So Glenn, like the sacrificial lamb here. Yeah. Yeah. Like Glenn. It, I like him. Yeah. I like him a lot. I like what he did here. I, and you, I, I think Taylor grows to understand his reasoning. Like she gets it. Yeah. By the end of this conversation. Yeah. So as they walk to the tribunal, he gives her his card, letting her know that she can call his private number for advice. She immediately takes him up on it, asking for advice on what to do about her dad. And the arc ends with Dragon rebooting and calling up Defiant. Yay. She's back. Yeah. Hopefully the same. Yep. Maybe. I don't know. We're, I, I mean, know. yeah, we're, we're not sure. But yeah, but we have hope. All right. Let's move on to the name That's game, it. I guess. I mean, unless you want to yeah. talk about, I think that was a bit of talking, though. So, no, we're yeah, we're hey guys, we're running late. Yeah, shockingly, we're running. Yeah, hey, we're running late, guys. Name game. All right, say means once again, which is which is great. Once again, that's a good name. Yeah, it's a really good name. See what I did there? It's also the name. <laughs> it's also the name of an upcoming uh, Indian film. Yep. I did not know that. Yep. That's, did you Google that? Is that, yep. that what happened? Yep. Uh, annex means to append or add as an extra or subordinate part, um, but also specifically applied to buildings. Secondarily, it means to appropriate or to take for oneself. Um, and I guess he kind of annexes surrounding things into his like field of what he is. It, it's complicated. I don't have a real firm grasp on Annex's power, but that's kind of how I visualize it. Yeah, it's the, come on, T-1000, man. Yeah. Metal goop. T-1000, annex. Scooping, gooping it up. Um, so cuff is both the open, like the end part of a sleeve, um, or to strike with an open hand. So why do you think that name happened? Uh, uh, you know, the thing that they don't actually list on the definitions is like a hand cuff, which is metal. I'm not sure yeah. exactly. But I mean, I mean, she's, yeah. she's a striker, so the, the striking part makes sense. And, yeah. and she kind of has metal on her on her hands, so her cuffs are metal. Yeah, yeah her I guess cuffs are metal. Yeah, I kind of see it. Exalt is uh, to hold something or someone very highly, which is literally what his power does because he's like yeah. an aerokinetic flyer. There we go. <laughs> and uh, Weaver, uh, 
so N1E1 on Reddit pointed out that we never actually did a name game for Weaver. That's um, our bad guys. Which is Sorry. which is quite fair because that's like completely completely worth talking about at length. Um, the name emphasizes the, in my opinion, the constructive attributes of her power as a maker of things rather than a destroyer. More abstractly, weaving involves bringing things together, which Taylor is all about, all about bringing people together in, in cooperation. And also, it's just kind of a pun on Taylor. I did not realize the Taylor pun until you wrote this here, and I was really mad at myself because that's so obvious and wonderful. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Which, which, I love it. This is, uh, you know, with all of these, I always, I always ask myself, like, is this, are we, are we supposed to think that the characters who pick these names are picking them for deeper reasons? Or is it just like Wildo just loves language and can't help himself? Uh, I think, both. I think it's both. <laughs> yeah. I think it's both. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, that's, that's our selection of name game. There were others, but, um, you know, can't do them all. That would take forever. So yeah. let's get on into those juicy, juicy speculations. All right. We got some old ones to clear, Matt, and I'm going to need your help with them because right. uh, I don't know what to do. Okay. Um, so I said that the next bringer will be Behemoth. Yes. And it will not go well. Okay. So how do we define not going well? Because it's dead. Yeah. They won. Yeah. So so I'm actually going to gonna defer this this call um, because I... I actually read what Wildo said about this prediction and he was like, he basically said like, Oh, that's kind of funny because, because that's because it, because it does go well or something along those lines. And and so I'm (laughs) like, if, if I hadn't seen that, I would actually be tempted to be like, well, um, you know, we lose Regent, we lose every building in the city, probably tens of thousands of, of dead, um, and lots of capes, um doesn't sound good but but they do kill behemoth so i guess it goes better than it could have yeah i guess uh, here's why i think i don't get this right because the spirit of my prediction was that of of it not going well was going to be that this is a, a a harbinger of the end of the protectorate and the prt and it was going to go so badly that the, these systems would finally just collapse. Um, and that is clearly not going to be what happens. So, yeah, you did get the part about it being behemoth, right, though? Yeah, but that was pretty obvious, though. It was the only one we hadn't seen. I don't know. That's not too big of a stretch. I mean, I, I definitely want to give you more than 50% credit. Okay. All right, next one. Uh, I said last week that either Accord or Chevalier will survive Cody's betrayal. Um, however, I also said that I thought it was going to be Accord because Wildbow doesn't like me to have nice things. So I don't know what to call that again, because when I wrote it down, I just said one of these two is going to survive. But in my actual recorded saying, I said it would be Accord. So I don't know. I think I'm going to give you credit for this. I mean, like, yeah, I can't that's that's the thing i i have no interest in in lawyering you about the details of these like i I think i think you you were right that one lived and one died and and if you like the more the more spandrels you put on a prediction the less likely it's going to be to be true so i'm just going to take like the core of it and judge that okay i like that um and the last one is that brian will die during the embringer fight and that is needs no lawyering 
Smith was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, I think what I did, what I did here looking back on it was I knew someone was going to die and I didn't want it to be anyone else. <laughs> and so I let that cloud the obvious setup of it being regent. And that's why I made this prediction. So, and like, guys, I don't dislike Brian. <laughs> I just like him the least. So if I know someone's going to die, I don't want Brian to die. I don't want Brian to die. Yeah. But if I know someone's going to die, which I did, he's the one I would I would pick. Yeah. I would Sophie's choice, Brian. Yeah. And I think you're right that someone had to die because um, you can't, like, if it, narratively, you can't have two consecutive in-ringer fights where every undersider makes it out fine and maintain this idea that the inbringers are just this horrifically deadly force. You have to lose somebody somewhere in here. Um, yeah, and, and with all the dying and the, the death in this book, our, our core endbringer characters had escaped all of it. Yeah. I mean, definitely not unharmed. They've gone through terrible things, but they've escaped death. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I, I'm, I think it was, I, I think I, I agree that like it had to happen. Um, just didn't want it to happen to poor Alec. All right. Yeah, I know. So, yes, now I'm excited to hear your new predictions. Yeah, so so first is like we're, we're at another part where the story seems to have finished a big thing and we're going forward now. So I like to do these big like what happens next speculations. Um, Taylor is absolutely joining the Chicago Wards um, and we'll be moving to Chicago and we'll be on that team for the foreseeable future. Um, I think Danny's probably going to join her there. Um, I think he's probably going to move to be with her and hopefully that relationship will be repaired um i think we're as far as central conflicts we're going to move to uh to cauldron a deeper dive into cauldron um we've also got the slaughterhouse nine still in the back there somewhere we've also got um but i think so here, here's here's the i'm just kind of talking but here's the prediction part uh besides taylor joining the chicago wards i think the next conflict we're going to be having right now is going to be between dragon and defiant and saint and the dragon slayers i think that's what's going to happen next so that's that's my prediction okay okay and then um number two my big Scion prediction, I think Scion is a passenger. Not only is Scion a passenger, Scion is the source of this shit. And he might not even know it, but but that's what I think. I'm ready. That's my prediction. All right. Boom. Well, awesome. And that will wrap up <laughs> our coverage of Arc 24, Crushed. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve, so let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Uh, make sure you, you go on there and, and follow us to follow my live readings, which happen every Thursday. Uh, my personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at mordinafapadichip. And and just a reminder that we've we've got that uh, uh, fan art contest poll up there on the Got Warm Pod Twitter. So uh, yes, yes, now that you're you. finishing up the episode, maybe go check that out. There's still time. Just click possibly. over there. Yeah, possibly. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. 
And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, we have a new episode of the Daily Planet podcast over on our main feed, uh, discussing the film Zodiac by David Fincher, as well as Fincher's new show on Netflix, Mindhunter, which I am now five episodes into and is incredible. Um, you can also, you could find that over on our main channel, along with all the other podcasts we do. Uh, so-called writers will be having a double length episode this week to make up for Matt totally bailing on it last week. That's right. That's right. Um, excited about that. And, uh, if you like any of these shows and you want to support them, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks Two, we have a bunch of new patrons uh, because of our weird scheduling issues. But since our last thanks, we have new planeteers, Dwayne and Mateo, both at the $1 level, and uh, Wildbo at the $5 level. Who's that? Which feels really nice. Yeah, thanks, Wildbo. Yeah. Uh, and at the Captain Planet level, Ricky, who upgraded to the $10 level. Uh, Kryptonians, we have Kevin, who upgraded to the $20 level. And we have uh, a new literally Superman, uh, Kayakin, uh, who upgraded to the $50 level. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's it's really it's really amazing. It's really motivating. Um, it It's great. Thank you all so much. Yeah, also, absolutely. Also, speaking of Patreon, of course, make sure that while you're over there, stop my wild those page and toss some money there because he depends on this for a living and he's the guy who makes this whole thing possible and he's starting Worm 2. So, you know. He needs it, guys. Go. Yeah. Go. Be like my swarm and swarm his Patreon page. <laughs> uh, if you can't spare an extra catch at this moment, of course, we... And Wild Bow will totally understand. <laughs> um, consider leaking this podcast out on your company intranet. Like, you know, just like get a video, uh, get the audio recording and leak it out. Even if it gets you fired, it will probably be worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, your work needs a harbinger. Uh, and it's us. It's us. Mm -hmm. Or you could simply like go to iTunes and rate and review us. This week we have two, Matt, two iTunes reviews from our international audiences. Oh, yeah. We have. We have Dreab from Belgium, uh, who gives us five stars and says, I loved Worm when I first read it. Thanks to Matt and Scott's insight, I now understand it better, why it's such a pleasant read. It's great to learn more about the themes and details I missed when I first read it and made me start rereading and listening Worm again. Each week, I look forward to both the podcast and Scott's live tweet. Thank you, Dreab. We also have Mystery Gamer from the Netherlands, who also gives us five stars and says, these gentlemen point out underlying themes and motives of the web serial worm. If you've never heard of it, you should read it and listen along with these guides to deepen your understanding. For me, it's an incredible way to relive such an amazing story. Guys, both of you, thank you so much. One of these days, Matt, one of these days, we're going to get a one star review. One of these days. And I promise I'll read it. Yeah. I'll read the mean ones, too. Yeah. And if you're listening, but please don't just write a mean one on purpose yeah that would, please. that would be less than <laughs> funny but you know just but, you know <laughs> the point is for now we get to bask in these five-star reviews and these kind words from our listeners thank you guys so much please keep it up it really does help yeah definitely all right that's it for us this week next week we're covering arc 25 scarab um at the regular time scott based on the name what do you think scarab is going to be about i mean i'm guessing that taylor's gonna like roll a ball of poo okay all right. 
Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think Scarab, I mean, that's, that's what the, the image on her costume is, right? That's the image of the, the Scarab beetle is, is Taylor is Weaver. So, uh, the beetle is also worshiped. So maybe, maybe we're going to be finding our girl, um, finally in, in a place where she belongs and is doing good and, and things are starting to click for her. Maybe. Okay. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll find out next week on another exciting episode of We've Got Worm. Cool, cool, cool. I'm good to go. Let's fucking rock this thing. Yes, let me just, amp up my... Just do it. Just do it. Oh, come on. Come on, Scott. Let's do this. Uh, behemoth is gonna die. Uh, uh.